Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. I'm Frankenstein, the man-made monster. Who was buried alive 300 years ago? I'm here from the dead. Hey Richard, this song we're listening to on the radio right now, or my playlist really, it's called Frankenstein. It's by King Horror. And let me see, I make sure I get this right. It's a 2022, or excuse me, 2020 compilation called Skinhead Train, the complete singles collection, 1969 to 1970. So that's what you get when you search for Frankenstein 1970. You get a song called Frankenstein that is from an album that has 1970 in it. It's a reggae song. It, it sounds like it would be punk or something, right? Skinhead It's not Train. what I would necessarily it, expect with the title of Skinhead. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's what you get. You know, I kind of thought you might go with Frankenstein, the classic from was it Edgar Winter? You right. know? Yeah. But uh, this works. Totally works. Yeah. So I all kinds of spoilers in that uh, little introduction there. You want to clarify things for those that didn't keep up and and say what we're doing this month? Well, it's June, and what have we done for the last couple of Junes? We have headed to the drive-in, drive-ins of the past. And so kicking off our uh, our now third annual uh, Summer at the Drive-In series for the next three months. And uh, our first stop, we're going back to 1961 and checking out the Rochester Drive-In in Rochester, New York. There's actually another Rochester Drive-In in the same time period that was in Rochester, New Hampshire. But we're going to New York. And they are got a giant horror show that's playing. Four big movies, but we're only seeing the first two. We're checking out Frankenstein 1970, the classic with Boris Karloff. This is the first time it showed in Rochester in Cinemascope. And then we're uh, gonna be seeing a color flick. Edgar Allan Poe's The Pit and the Pendulum with uh, Vincent Price, the Roger Corman classic. I cannot wait. I love both of these movies. So if we're criticized for being a little harsh, maybe on Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger or something, we're going to get criticized for all of the gushing I'm going to do this time. I mean, we've got Karloff and Price, and even even a bad Karloff and Price film still has something good going for it, for the most part, except for Karloff and you know, that island monster movie that I mentioned. Yeah. That This is much better than that. This is actually a lot of fun. And come on, we, we made it easy for our, our, our listeners because this was on Spenguli this month. Uh, I mean, so we just kind of hand fed you that one, folks. I mean, you didn't even have to rent it or buy it. You could have watched it absolutely free. Now, we didn't tell you that in advance, except I think we did on Facebook, but... Uh, 
you know, we didn't know that it was going to be. But I think Sven Gulli listened in and he said, hey, we need to play Frankenstein 1970. So, and he did Vincent Price last month. Clearly, clearly the stars are aligned and, and everything is circling around what you and I are doing here at Classic Horrors Club. Rich, we just need to tell everyone he's our buddy and that we're in cahoots and we plan these things together. <laughs> so we still want to hold, you know, some resemblance of our normal meeting. I didn't bring the gavel. I forgot it. So I'm just going to beat my hands on the dash and we'll call this meeting to order. Let's save our old business till we get to the drive-in. Let's use this time just to kind of chat. Tell us a little more about this drive-in that we're going to, Richard, and its history and anything to just prepare us for what we'll find when we get there. Absolutely. So the Rochester Drive-In was originally located at 1200 Scottsville Road in Rochester, New York, and it was opposite of the Rochester Airport, which I guess would occasionally make for some fun when airplanes would fly and you're trying to watch a movie. And of course, back in the days when they had speakers and didn't have it tuned into your radio, kind of an interesting location but oftentimes i guess drive-ins are kind of originally were kind of on the outskirts of town and and so you know it makes sense that it might be close to the airport it originally opened on may 29th 1942 and it was originally known as the drive-in theater very original name and its very first film i thought this was cool it was a movie called look who's laughing and being an old time radio nut like I am, I, I know this movie well. It's a Fibber McGee and Molly movie. They did some movies in the uh, around this time period and Look Who's Laughing is considered the biggest and best because it also had Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy and it also starred a young Lucille Ball. Um, Harold Perry was in it playing his great Gildersleeve character which was originally on Fibber McGee and then spun off into his own radio show. So uh, I thought it was kind of cool that that was the first movie that they played. Doing a little bit of research, some sources say that it originally had a capacity for 750 cars. However, reading a newspaper article about the debut, it specifically said that it had capacity for 900 cars. History there got a little bit muddy. I'm going to say that it had a capacity for at least 900 cars when it opened, and it boasted the new Simplex sound system. Don't know what that was, never heard of it. It was apparently a big deal in 1942. Tickets were 35 cents to get in. Now, it didn't look like they had car load pricing, so that was 35 cents for adults and uh, children were free, and they had two shows nightly, uh, which is also something kind of interesting. Um, and that was a big deal, I guess, back then, is to have not just one, but two showings in a nightly. I don't know how you would make sure everybody got out or did you get in and just stay for the first? I know that theaters used to do that, right? They would just play movies continuously throughout the day. So I think, you know, once you were in, you could sometimes sneak in to stick around for a while unless they would intentionally clean out the theater. Anyway, 1946, it was renamed the Rochester Drive-In. And uh, that was the name it went by until it closed in 1982. Now, unfortunately, there's really not much left of the Rochester Drive-In. Looking at aerial views, there's like what I thought was a road that might have been like an entry road, but I think it's actually like a, a runway because it, it does appear that it's it's the towers 
airport business park. So I think that it's it's a little bit of, of an airport as well for maybe some smaller planes. Don't quote me on that. But looking at the aerial shots, you really don't see anything that looks like a drive-in. However, at least as of 2007, the snack bar building was still standing. It had been repurposed. You can clearly see the entry doors. You can see the projection windows are still there. It had been kind of bricked over. That was the last standing thing that would, you know, connect you to the drive-in. And you'd actually have to really know where it was and, and know what you're looking at because otherwise it's a building that just kind of blends in with the rest of the new buildings built around it. That's the history I found. I didn't have much else to find on it. Uh, other, I don't know what they played when they closed. You know, it survived up until the early 80s when a lot of drive-ins were starting to shut down at that point. It uh, certainly survived a, a nice run in the 40s, 50s, and 60s and continued to run in the 70s until it finally closed along with so many other drive-ins in the 80s. I think this is a good time to mention, Richard, that uh, our video companion on YouTube on our Classic Horrors Club channel, we will be at the drive-in and you can actually see a picture of it. We're planning to do that when we get there, turn on the cameras and uh, we'll take a look inside the snack bar and we'll look at the actual structure and, and show that. Be sure to tune in on YouTube to watch that. And Richard, I have another question that's kind of haunting me. You know, you mentioned a lot of change going on in 1982, especially for poor Rochester losing their drive and everything. Put that in perspective for us. Like, what in the world was going on in 1982? Well, you know, we're in the midst of inflation here in 2022. And so it was kind of funny, just last night, Carl and I were watching The Stepfather on uh, on Shutter, on Joe Bob's last drive-in, and that's a 1987 movie. And I just kind of jokingly said, you know, gosh, wouldn't it be nice to go back to 1987? There was a scene where a girl was leaving like a restaurant. They had some 80s music playing. And it's like, for all the threat and all the bad stuff that was probably happening in the 80s that we tend to gloss over, prices were sure a heck of a lot cheaper. <laughs> Uh, so in 1982, you could get a Hershey's bar for 35 cents. The most popular candy of the year was Reese's Pieces because of a little film called E2. E2, E.T. <laughs> Commodore 64 was the first home use computer and it probably could do a, I don't even say a fraction would be accurate compared to what we can do with our phones now. But uh, that was a big deal if you had a Commodore 64 in your house. The top song of the year was I Love Rock and Roll by Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. Joan Jett still rocking it in 2022. She's actually on tour with several bands. They're doing like stadium tours this summer. In late 82, a uh, little album called Thriller by some artist by the name of Michael Jackson. I don't know whatever oh. happened to Michael. Yeah, never that album it. probably came and went rather quickly, but nonetheless, that was released before the end of the year. Top TV shows included a show you and I both watched back then, I'm sure, Dallas. It was the number two television show behind 60 Minutes. MASH was also still hanging in there. I wanna say they ended in 82 or 83, around that time frame. But uh, they were still incredibly popular, top 10 show. You could get a Sony Walkman for $129, which seems incredibly high. 
But it was 1982. I don't know how many people had Walkmans in 82. I didn't have a Sony Walkman. I think I had a, a, a whatever. I was trying to come up with some inventive name, but, you know, some uh, generic brand, which worked perfectly fine for me. Top movies of the year included that E.T. movie that I was talking about. <laughs> Rocky Three, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Creep Show, and hey, here's my first Star Trek reference. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan opened up in the summer of 82. And if you wanted to know what the worst movie of the year, I normally don't do this, but I saw this and thought this was fun to mention. A little film called Inchon. Have you ever seen Inchon? I've never seen it, but I we've talked about that. It, it, it is a, it's a bad movie. It, it's a very bad film. Now this may shock you, but the Queen of England was actually <laughs> Queen Elizabeth. We had Ronald Reagan was our president. And Valley Girl Lingo was popular in 1982 for sure. I was going to try to do oh. my Valley Girl. <laughs> that it was great. That was like the worst thing ever. Like, grody to the max, gag me with the spoon. You do that too well. I do, don't <laughs> I? <laughs> I think Valley Girl came out. That movie came out in 82. And I think that was also the year that... The song came out, it wasn't a big hit, but Moon Unit Zappa and her dad, Frank Zappa, did Valley Girl. I remember that song well. That's what was happening in 1982 when the Rochester Drive-In, I was gonna say closed its doors, but uh, shut off the, the projector for the last time. You know what we ought to do in this segment? I, don't, I can't believe, and by the way, we are episode 69. In the previous 68 episodes when we do What in the World Happened, we've never, I don't believe, mentioned the price of comic books. Since oh that's gosh. both of our interests, we ought to start doing that. I mean, it's, it may not be part of your research. That probably is not something that is often told as a, no. a, a landmark. But just for curiosity, I mean, uh, we should start adding that. I, I, you know, that's shameful. We're five years into the show and we, you just came up with that. That's, that's a brilliant idea. Perfect timing rich because we're here uh, i'm gonna pull in and find a spot uh, we're plenty early so i think we'll have time to do old business I'll, I'll get safely parked and pull out my notes okay here we go so we do have some new members we have a facebook group page the classic horse club podcast just a, a community gathering place for people that listen to the podcast. And we have three new people that have joined. So let's verbally welcome Christina Moulet, Michael Corte, and Ken Coakley. As always, please forgive any mispronunciations. But we are glad to have you in the Facebook group and invite you and everyone else to join and to participate in the conversation. Absolutely. Welcome, one and all. Some people may notice we're doing two movies this time instead of three, and I think that's something you may see more of. But this week, there's a legitimate reason. Richard, we are drowning in feedback. These are people that have gone above and beyond just the Facebook group page. They've called and left us a voicemail. We have someone that left us an email. We'll share after all of this how to do that. But let's start out with our good friend, Alistair who had some feedback on our Sinbad episode, which was our last episode, 68. Hi, Jeff and Rich. Al Hughes here from New Zealand, the Themyscira, or is that the Hyperborea of the South Pacific? 
I just had to tell you both how much I loved your Sinbad episode. Ably assisted, as you were, by Steve and Kurt Christian himself. As usual, you were both thorough, thoroughly entertaining, and fair in your analyses. Maybe even harsh, but fair, in the case of Eye of the Tiger. As I've mentioned before, for me personally, this one exemplifies that situation where you see a film at a certain age and under certain circumstances, Christmas Eve 1977 in my case, and it just hits every possible spot. At age 11, my best friend and I emerged from that cinema, still young enough to be excited by Christmas and convinced that we'd just seen the greatest film of all time. Already a huge Doctor Who fan, it would have blown my tiny tween mind even more if I'd actually recognised Patrick Troughton under that beard. However, as a slightly more mature adult, of course I can see that every one of your criticisms were absolutely valid. Although to me, I of the Tiger still holds wonder, and the best poster of the three, I struggle with the idea that it had a larger budget than Seventh Voyage. That one wins out for me because of its perfect casting, and I still kick myself that I didn't ask Martin Shaw more about his own experiences on the movie when I was fortunate enough to interview him many years ago. Okay, I'm rolling up the dusty scroll of my ancient remembrances now. Thank you both again for your wonderful show and this absolutely superb episode, A Golden Voyage Through the Beloved Sinbad Films. Take care, gentlemen. Bye. Alistair, I appreciate what you said about Eye of the Tiger being your favorite movie. I think Richard's going to talk more about it, but you have attachments to movies that that make them your favorite. There needs to be no rationalization, no explanation. If that's what it is, that's fantastic. I love that you have that connection to Eye of the Tiger. I did not and may have been unnecessarily harsh of it, but I I love that you love that movie. Yes, thank you for your, for your feedback. It, it, let me just start off by saying... Just the sound of your voice elevates our podcast to another level. You, you've got an amazing voice, sir. You've got a voice for radio and podcasting. So not a surprise that you have uh, entered that world with our good friend, Mr. Turek. Anyway. It's so gentle and calming. I oh, mean, it is. Would you, I mean, you know, maybe you could read the phone book to me sometime, Alistair, and just, I, I've been very really <laughs> tense and stressed lately. That would just be so calming. We all have experiences with films and the movie may be a bad movie but you enjoy it because you have nostalgic memories i love star trek 5 most people don't care for that movie uh oftentimes one of the worst star trek films if not the worst uh and i will say well you know what i've got some nostalgic memories because i went to go see it with my dad i was living in paris texas at the time and went to the cinemas one and two in paris texas not a grand theater long since closed. The building is still standing vacant. And and uh, unfortunately, I, I did a Google Earth search to see and it's still there. But fond memories of that movie. I think there's always something to find in any movie. And uh, Alistair, your, your podcast with Steve Hammerama, I know, I don't believe it's out yet, but you are getting ready to do Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. Uh, I heard you call me out at the end of your last episode because that is one of my favorite hammers. And I hopefully will return your favor and perhaps send you a message that you could play on that episode because I adore that movie. Well, we got an email from our friend Billy Dunleavy from Magazines and Monsters. Kind of a short and sweet. Just wanted to touch base with us. He said, just wanted to let you know 
I enjoyed the last couple of episodes with the Lon Chaney and Harryhausen talk. Looking forward to what's coming up next. Keep up the good work. He uh, does a lot of fun stuff over at his blog. He talks well, magazines and monsters. He loves talking about horror comics. I recorded a podcast with him a while ago where we talked about the Norless tapes. That was a lot of fun uh, talk. It was part of a new series he wanted to do about TV movies and, and kind of a genre related Kind of similar to what you're doing over at your blog as well, kind of covering the TV movies. There's, there's a plethora, there's a whole podcast there alone. Really, you could spend a lot of time doing that. So good to hear from him. Thank you for sending that little touch base. Appreciate it. And I think we have some more feedback. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Billy. That's a nice affirming email to get. And we really appreciate you taking the time to send that. That was nice. Finally, we have another voicemail from our friend Jonathan. Hey, Jeff and Rich. It's Jonathan. Just checking. I know it's been a few months. As usual, I'm way behind on my feedback, but I thought I'd check in. Um, I hope you're both well. I've been loving what you've been doing lately. I uh, did listen to the Cheney podcast. Uh, It was amazing. And actually, again, three films I have not seen. And it also... um, kind of point out a, a pretty major blind spot I think I have for Cheney. I've only seen a handful of his films, so I have quite a bit of homework to do. As usual, though, and as I often do, I circle back to these films that you cover months and months after the fact, so you'll probably be getting uh, feedback from me, you know, like around Christmas or <laughs> lunch, and uh, I always get the man who gets slapped, or he who gets slapped, that film with uh, uh, the Man Who Laughs, the Conrad Veidt film, which I do love. And I'm not sure if you guys have covered that one. I don't think so. But that's an amazing film. has a lot of heart. Um, I do want to circle back to the Quatermass episode. I know I kind of chimed in after that one and let you know. I think when last time I called, I was watching these. I, have, of course, seen these movies several times, but you guys need to not see them. And I think the last time I called, she had seen one and two and really loved one, liked two, but not as much. And since that time, we circled... Uh, we watched Quatermass in the Pit, uh, which she had never seen, and a movie I really love. One of my favorite Hammer films. And she loved it. So I think she the Andrew Keir interpretation of Quatermass was different. Uh, though she does like the Brian Dunleavy version, take on it, I should say. She really enjoyed it. So I think for her, her favorite is a toss-up between one and three, actually. I know, Jeff, I promise you do uh, feedback, but I think I waited too long, and now I have to kind of reintroduce her to those and... Maybe I'll have her give feedback in another episode. But anyway, great episode. The Harry Housen episode you guys just did was wonderful. Great for a kind of a, a summer themed. Uh, I feel like the Sword and Sandal and the adventure films are, uh, and Harry Housen in general are just great summer movies. So it was a great episode. I really enjoyed um, the way Steve, Steve Tonic, um was able to facilitate and did that interview with Kurt Christian. Seems like a really nice guy, really a gentle soul and, um, had some really amusing um, anecdotes to share. I love all three of Harry Hansen's films. I would probably say the second, 73 Years Golden Voyage with Sinbad is, is my favorite. I feel like kind of everything comes together. I the Tiger is good, but I do agree, and I know you guys commented on this, that it's just maybe a little less. I hate to put it that way. I mean, there's some great creatures and some good performances. Patrick Wayne... Uh, it's okay uh, for me a little stilted. I do enjoy in some other roles a little more. I feel like everything is a little less than I have a good film, 
but uh, I would definitely say Golden Voyage is my favorite. Although my favorite of all Harryhausen's, you know, sword and sandal films is definitely Jason and the Argonauts. Oh, I would take them over all the Sinbad. I don't know if that's sacrilege for some folks, but, you know, that's I – mean, there's a nostalgic appeal for that. I grew up watching that and always enjoyed that movie. But even as an adult, I feel like it holds up really well. Probably my, some of my favorite Harryhausen creations and creatures are in Jason the Argonauts, the gentleman who plays Hercules is great. The cast is solid. Score is amazing. So yeah, I really enjoyed those. Um, otherwise, uh, Yasmina and I are going on to our little informal uh, summer disaster series. We're in our third year of doing this, so I wouldn't say we're scraping the bottom of the barrel, but <laughs> I think um, I think we're having to search a little a little harder for films because we've done all the big ones and some of the smaller ones and discovered some ones we have never seen last year, like Cassandra Crossing and. Um, I think I'm getting that right. And um, Juggernaut, which was amazing. Uh, so far this year, all we watched is Grey Lady Down, which I really enjoyed. I know uh, Rich Jeff and I connected. Uh, we've connected about this offline, but really enjoy um, Charlton Heston's performance. It's very restrained. Uh, I would joke he's less Heston-y in this, although I like when he's full Heston. But um, anyone who watches, you know, has seen Charlton Heston in a even a handful of movies knows what I'm talking about, but it's pretty restrained in this. It had a great cast: young Christopher Reeve, uh, Ned Beatty, uh, Stacy Keach, and a bunch of other folks that you'll recognize. Bunch of character actors you'd recognize. So, uh, I think next we're going to try to hit up Roller Coaster, maybe the Hindenburg. We haven't seen these films. Airport 79, maybe to finish out the Airport series. It's the Concord. It sounds a little rough, but I think if we're going to be completed, we should watch it. <laughs> and also, I would just say. Um, as far as you know, I know I've mentioned that I kind of circle back to your films, you know, way after the fact. And one uh, one example of that is Race with the Devil, uh, which we just, which I just watched. Actually, I watched that solo uh, with Warren Oates and Peter Fonda. I thought they were great together. And Laura, I got a blanking on her name. Uh, Laura Parker, that's uh, uh, the actress from Dark Shadows, who plays Angelique. And I'm right in those Angelique episodes. I'm up to about episode 400 of Dark Shadow, so I still have one more ways to go. But yeah, that was really, that was a good one. It reminded me of um, one of the early Mad Max films, me, oh God, the satanic film from the mid-70s, uh, John Travolta, you guys covered it, House of, um, I'm totally blanking, you know the film I'm talking about, <laughs> but it reminded me of several other films, kind of a, kind of a mashup, if you will, but I really enjoyed it, it was, uh, had that strong, and I don't think I'm giving it to you guys already, kind of gave this spoiler uh, when you covered it, you know, a few months back, but it has that semi-very 70s downer ending, um, or at least a surprise, semi-downer ending. I don't know why they thought they were, the four of them thought they were, you know, off the hook, and since they were parked in some desolate roadside, and these Satanists have been everywhere and tracking them, and, you know, all of a sudden there's a ring of fire around their RV, but anyway, I definitely enjoyed that one. It was It was quite a thrill ride. But I've gone on long enough, I think. I'll let you guys go. Keep up the great work. I can't wait for the drive-in episodes. Those are always a blast. and so great for summer. And I know they're backed by popular demand, so I look forward to, to those. And we'll talk soon. Okay, bye, guys. Thank you, Jonathan. We'll take feedback whenever we can get it. I don't care how many months later it is. So whether you're talking about an episode we did six months ago or we're going to hear you in six months talking about this episode, that's perfectly fine. We'd love to hear from you anytime. I have a few comments on, on what you said as well. Proceeds or Lon Chaney blind spots. Absolutely. I think we talked about it in the podcast. 
there's so much and not all genre related, but there's a lot from Lon Chaney that was lost, but there's a lot that still exists. And you know, some are maybe a little rougher around the edges, just quality wise, but there's a lot of fun stuff out there. And that podcast, plus a few of the extra films that I watched that month allowed me to kind of start filling in some of those blind spots. But I still have Lon Chaney films that I want to check out. And so nice to know that, you know, there's only so much time in a given day and a given week, and you got stacks of movies we all want to watch. Sometimes you just have to kind of pick and choose. So it's nice to know that there's other people out there that have blind spots with someone as legendary as Lon Chaney. Uh, good to hear his comments on Simbad. Uh, his Summer Disaster series just reminds me we need to do our sequel to our disaster episode. I had a lot of fun with that. He mentioned he saw Grey Lady Down with Charlton Heston. I don't believe I've ever seen that. Charlton Heston, I love Charlton Heston. And even though he may not be in full-blown Heston mode in this one, uh, that's definitely something I need to watch. He rattled off some other films on their list, Roller Coaster and Hindenburg. That's definitely some deep dives on the disaster genre that I think would be fun. And of course, nice to hear he, he's doing some catch-up and watching Race with the Devil. Yes, the three of us kind of talked a little bit about that the other other night. That's a fun flick, definitely. So good to hear from you, Jonathan. Well, I do have to make a couple corrections, and I'm sure he would appreciate it. We did indeed cover The Man Who Laughs. I couldn't at the moment tell you which episode, Richard. I don't know if you could, but we have covered that, Jonathan. I'm sure it just slipped your mind. And the other thing is, I loved your comparison of race with the devil as a sort of a mashup between mad max and you couldn't remember the movie i'm just certain you're thinking of devil's reign and yes race with the devil mad max meets devil's reign is is spot on now i have something to say and i'm going to make an offer and this is to both you jonathan and richard first of all yasmin i've said this before yasmin is a keeper uh the fact that she is watching these movies and seemingly enjoying them. And Richard, we know Carla does as well. If you two do not get together and do a podcast with your wives, talking to them as you're introducing them this to these movies, you are missing an opportunity. I would be happy to produce such a podcast. I think that I'm not joking. I am serious to have, you know, recorded for posterity, you showing them a movie they've never seen. I know Carla has seen a lot of them, but Still, she watches new movies. And Yasmin, have them on as a first-time viewer with a seasoned professional beside them. I'd listen to that. That would be a lot of fun. Carla has an aversion to public <laughs> and uh, microphones and cameras. But she's very insightful as we watch some of these movies. And, you know, we'll see things that I don't. And her memory, I mean, she'll recognize you know, someone is saying that person looks familiar. She may not immediately rattle off, you know, well, that's so-and-so, but she, she'll recognize, you know, somebody. I'm like, I don't remember this person. And then I'll look it up and I'm like, well, yes, yes. That was someone who had like five seconds of screen time in this movie. It's, it's a lot of fun to have someone who kind of shares your love for these movies. To the man who laughs, we did that in episode 51. Gotcha. That was our silent episode where we did The Golem, The Phantom Carriage, and The Man Who Laughs. Very good. So when your new podcast is a big hit, 
you will have whatever it's called the next generation and we'll have Jensen and we'll have Stella and you both will be introducing them to these movies. With any, with any luck, we will have another generation of, of uh, monster movie fans because, you know, I mean, Stella loves her Godzilla and her, yeah. you know, Gamera. I mean, yeah. I think, you know, yeah. So never know. Well, if you would like to call and tell us about your grandchildren or any of our episodes <laughs> or any movies you've seen or anything, you can leave us a voicemail like Alistair and Jonathan did at 616-649-2582. That is 616-649-CLUB. Lovely, lovely. All right, I've got to collect my, I always have to collect myself. All right, what was I going to say? Okay. Or if you want to write us an email like Billy did, you can do that at classichorrors.club at gmail.com. Richard, don't sing it, but we finally, I believe, resolved the email situation. Would you like to repeat that email address? Classichorrors.club at gmail.com. The dot stands for a period. We are hip modern people and we say dot instead of period. <laughs> exactly. Richard, our timing is just impeccable because it looks like the movie is about to start. So, uh, ooh, gosh, I'm not even going to run to the concession stand. I'm going to do it after our first movie. But it looks like Frankenstein 1970 is about to roll. Let's check it out. The one, the only, king of monsters brings you the demon of the atomic age. Boris Karloff as Frankenstein, 1970, carrying on the hideous experiments of his infamous ancestor. In this stone sarcophagus, deep in the bulls of the earth, he buried his creature his creation. Frankenstein, 1970. In the hell pit of his centuries-old castle, he perverts the terrifying wonders of nuclear science. This gets you some eyes. To unleash a horror beyond all imagination. What kind of dealings do you have with the director of the morgue? Are you interested in corpses? Even the cyclotron concealed in his subterranean vaults cannot complete his foul creation, for which he must have throbbing vital organs transplanted from living beings. people are missing and I want to know why they haven't come back. Mr. Rowe, I imagine, would have us suspect foul play. Chris Karloff as Frankenstein 1970. Intermission, rise and stretch time. Time to refresh yourself and visit our snack bar. Got a yen for hot popcorn? 
Your favorite soft drinks are sparkling cold. The juicy Frank sizzling hot. There's delicious coffee freshly brewed and all kinds of ice cream and candy to tempt you. Showtime will be announced loud and clear to get you back to your car in time. So stretch your legs. Come to the snack bar now. Richard, I found the best thing at the snack bar ever. I can't believe this always happens to us, but look who I found at the snack bar. Bill Mize. Yes, it's a fellow time traveler, Mr. Bill Mize. I spoke over you. I'm, I'm sorry for that. That's okay. I was standing in line waiting to get two chili cheese dogs at the concession stand, and I oh. feel a tap. <laughs> I feel a tap on my shoulder, and it's Jeff. I didn't you know, realize what really... you were getting. You know, if you've ingested those already, maybe stand a little bit further. <laughs> how dare you, sir? <laughs> what are you insinuating, my good man? I, and this is such a coincidence you? because I am wearing my Bill Watches Movies t-shirt. I know. And I am going to send you a new, I've got a new great design. I'm going to send you two new t-shirts, two new designs free of charge for just being a, a sycophant. So yes, they, you're, you're so, yeah, you're so and, wonderful to wear that. And I, well, and I have to say this, I loved all the designs of all of them, but the one I picked like has no graphic. It's just all words. And yes, that's just cause I liked the, the aesthetics of it. So feel free to, you know, get a little more creative for, for me. I did. I, 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 I'll send you pictures and of the two des- new designs and you pick which one you want. And Rick, you, Rich, you can do the same. If you want free shirts, Bill watches movies, t-shirts. I will send each of you one in the mail just for being awesome dudes, man. Oh, that's yeah, nice. I you. think you actually <laughs> sent this one as well. So if you want me to pay for a t-shirt, I will. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you a link. Okay. It's T public, yes. you know, so they're very there, good. but you're very kind. You've been, you both have been very kind toward your support of my show. And I'm just glad we can time travel once a year and meet, you know, before we were born <laughs> or <laughs> well, in my case, I might be three or four years old right now. So yeah. I'm very, oh, so we got a time paradox happening here. You we know, will. Like, yes. I, yes. yeah, I don't want to think too much about that because I might <laughs> be being conceived at this moment. Yes. <laughs> you're still a zygote. <laughs> well, what is this Bill watches movies, uh, thing that we are speaking of. Tell us about that. Oh, Bill Watches Movies is a bourbon-driven, egomaniacal <laughs> trip uh, where I basically watch a great old B movie or an A movie sometimes, and I just yip-yap about that for a couple of hours. I always tell folks that we are the bastard love child of Mystery Science Theater 3000 and Old Time Radio. So if you like either of those things, and you do, you know you do. So yeah, on all your favorite podcasting machines, you can find me at Bill Watches Movies. And the website where you can also stream them for free is BillMakesPodcasts.com. You do not just yip-yap. This, it, <laughs> I know for a fact you script it. And absolutely, yeah, very funny. We have a very similar sense of humor and I just, I enjoy so much listening. I do have to say your latest episode though, for some reason, I am really hungry for some spaghetti. <laughs> yes. And, you know, if, if, you know, it's Lee Van Cleef. It's death rides a horse as opposed to death takes an Uber or death is very uh, 
uh, you know, death takes public transportation, so he does not contribute to the global warming problem. But if you'd like a good spaghetti Western, it just it was just released today. We're speaking on June the 18th, not to give anything away. But yes, it's two hours of me yippy yapping about Lee Van Cleef and Death Rides a Horse. And we throw a few Master Ninja references in there for you mystery science theater fans. So uh, I hope you like it. If you do, let me know. If you don't, keep it to yourself. So Something about summertime and Westerns just kind of go hand in hand, I think, for yes. me. That's, that's, that tends to be the time of year that I, I will watch more Westerns than not. So... And, yes. and I always say I need more Westerns in my life. So this gives me a good reason. I don't <laughs> know that me. I've I've got this one, though. So I'll, I'll need to do some checking on this one. I know I've got some Lee Van Cleef. I know I haven't seen it, but I do have a Spaghetti Western box set. So I, I think it nice. might be in there. And He's that really is a total unsung, blind you know, for me. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Clint Eastwood kind of gets all the Spaghetti Western love, but Van Cleef is really up there. You know, I think that there's really an argument to be made that he's actually better than Eastwood in a lot of things. He brings a different flavor to it. More prolific, actually. He he did more Very Spaghetti Westerns so. than Eastwood did. He did the Eastwood did the big three, but yes. Lee Van Cleef did more. So. And Lee Van Cleef was in one of the big three. So yes. uh, there, there's a dovetail there as well. So but, welcome uh, to the Spaghetti Westerns podcast. I was going to say, yes, uh, I'm zoning yes. out here in a minute. <laughs> uh, yes. But you also have I've a done... milestone coming up, don't you? I do. Thank you for mentioning that. The check is in the mail. Uh, Bill <laughs> the watches movies or the T-shirt. Yeah. Bill watches movies is actually celebrating its third anniversary in August. And as Jeff and Rich both know, uh, I let the viewers, the list, the, what I call the gentle listeners, the gentle listeners get to tell me what movie I'm going to do. So we've got about 15 to 20 that have been nominated by folks who are members of my email newsletter. And I'm going to be throwing the ballot out here soon. And they will vote on it. And I'm a man of the people and I uh, will do whatever movie wins the votes. Last year, it was The World, The Flesh and the Devil, which was a Harry Belafonte uh, junior vehicle predating the stand and the end of the world. And uh, I I did not see that one coming, as the saying goes. (laughs) But uh, I think it turned out to be a really good episode. I think people really liked it. And I think they liked the kind of interactive way that it's like, what movie do you want me to do? And people can recommend movies throughout the year. And I just kind of make mental notes. And I think folks will see that, you know, if all you have to do is just ask, you know, it is that easy, you know, the less thinking I have to do and coming <laughs> up because I'm trying to, because I'm also venturing next month into sword and sandal or peplum for the first time. So we're going to be taking a look. This is an exclusive for Ooh. classic horror show folks. We're going to be all doing right. Hercules in the haunted world, which is a Mario Bava technicolor reg park oiled and tanned and ready for lifting. It's just wonderful. And I and, can't wait. Uh, can't wait to record it. You got you gotta mention it's got a little Christopher Lee in it too. 
It does. It does. That you know, Christopher Lee as the mo with the Mo Harold, the Mo Howard bowl cut as the uh, you know the evil king who wants his Hercules's main squeeze. But it was just a joy to watch because I don't you know that's kind of my blind spot is sword and sandal and the kind of Italian uh, peplum type stuff that so. I'm going to see maybe it flies. Maybe, maybe the gentle listeners will like it or maybe they won't, you know, the Westerns are new. I kind of stuck for the first couple of years with science fiction and horror. Cause you got to dance with the one that brought you. So we'll see what happens. Uh, Sword and Sandal. I'm going to be doing Kung Fu movies. We're getting into the Shaw brothers. And so I'm going to try my hand at that. Well, I'm just, you know, I want to give, folks a little bit more of a borgish mord as the saying goes <laughs> rather than just uh science fiction and horror so we'll see what happens let shaw me know your thoughts out a, there. yeah shaw brothers is kind of a weak spot of mine but i was surprised several months ago i did like a free month trial for the arrow video streaming channel and that entire shaw brothers box set is on the streaming channel uh <clears throat> oh, including and some of the extras so they're just so fun. They're just so fun. And yeah, I think they're, that they're, they're, they're different. Cause I've, I've got mm. the, I've seen the Bruce Lee, you know, I got that great criterion box set last year, <laughs> Yeah, but uh, Shaw brothers is like a different, different world. It, it's, <laughs> it's like the Shaw brothers cinematic universe, yes. right? Yeah. They are so self-contained and they're, you know, they, their universe has certain laws as opposed to physics and, uh, Physics? It is. Is there physics. any physics in those movies? <laughs> it, well, physics is a very flexible thing yes, in the Shaw flexible. Brothers cinematic universe, along with aging, you know, different levels of Kung Fu, uh, you know. How long does yeah. it take to become an expert in Kung Fu? 30 years or 10 minutes? You, you, you choose. This is true. That's very true. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't realize you're uh, beyond the, the one you did this time. So it's good that we're bringing you back to classic horror and sci-fi. We just all yes. saw Frankenstein nineteen seventy. We did. We did. You're our guest. First shot. Tell us what what'd you think? Okay. Frankenstein 1970. This is actually one that I had not seen before. And when, you know, and when Jeff reached across the ether and said, which would you like to do pit in the pendulum or Frankenstein 1970? I'm like, Jeff and I, as folks may know, we have an affinity for the 1970s. I'm still going to put Jeff on the spot here and try to bully him into starting a podcast with me where we talk about 1970s movies and television. I think it would be very groovy to coin a phrase, Uh, but I'd never seen this before. I'm so like, oh, Frankenstein in 1970. So I'm thinking it's going to be like, you know, Dracula AD 1972. And I fire it up. I go grab, I grab a Blu-ray. I fire it up and it's made in 1958 and it's in black and white. (laughs) But, but having said that, it was filmed in black and white Cinescope. And it is so gorgeous, gorgeous. The movie itself, I'm really sorry about the script, uh, spoiler alert, but the movie itself was so sharp and so clean and gorgeous and widescreen. And I'm just like, you know, because I love a good black and white, you know, and the atomic era is, you know, where I may where I live, you know, and uh, I love the look of the film. 
The script was yikes, but I loved seeing an elder Karloff in his kind of prime, because as we know, later on, Karloff would start taking, you know, he, in, in the research I did for my Monsters by the Minute look at the mummy, you know, Karloff in his later years would, between takes, would be on oxygen. He would literally be crying in pain and just so... Uh, just, you know, he was a broken man in his later years, but he was, he was old, you know, and this lets you see an older Karloff, I believe at his prime. And if you, there's a, at the beginning, near the beginning of the movie, there is a monologue that Karloff does when he's being filmed in the crypt beneath Castle Frankenstein that he has rented out to a very groovy film crew who seem to have varying degrees of marital stability and marriage <laughs> vows. Uh, uh, let's just say that, you know, the, you know, the casting couch was in full effect even back in 1958. And, but he, he does this monologue and it's one take and it's gotta be at least five page, four to five pages of script. And you just watch a master in action. If you do nothing but fire up this Blu-ray and watch the beginning of that, because it the wheels come off the wagon really fast in this. And, you know, again, we're bending physics and time and, you know, screenwriter's plausibility. If you just watch and listen to Karloff with that monologue in the beginning and you're spellbound and he doesn't hesitate. He doesn't miss a word. He moves across the crypt where he hits his marks. And it's, it, <clears throat> it makes you sad that you're, that you know what's coming for this gentle man who just like good cricket match and tea. You, <laughs> yeah. What you know is coming for, you know, him late in later years when he starts working in Mexico and he needs money and he's, he's trying to still hold it together just as a professional, because the man had his pride. The man think, was a consummate actor, but think, if you yeah, just I watch that. When you talk about this time period, especially late fifties, early sixties, he did have this Renaissance really in this, in this time, dead, I mean, this, yeah, you know, because he was also doing some television work too, but yes, he was, I was going to mention this is when the yeah, time yeah. period, you know, late fifties, early sixties is when he did the Raven, yes. you know, and the terror, which the terrors. Yeah. The script in that is horrible, but mm -hmm. I have an affinity to that film. And I think it's just kind of this weird, fun film to watch, even though I don't understand what's going on half the time in the movie. And no matter how many times I've seen that, but you're right. As you get in those later years, it, it's tough to see, and especially when you watch him like in the Sorcerers or those yeah. Spanish flicks, and you know what's going on yeah. when the camera's off, right. and it, it is a bit harder. Visually, you know, this is a beautiful film, like you said. And, it and, is. It and, really and, is. And Karloff, in his elder years, this is kind of a great period because I think that, you know, when you look at like, say, late forties, you know, he wasn't really doing anything much horror related by that point, mm -hmm. early fifties, you know, he was doing television. He was doing some films where he was, he was doing of, radio, you know, he, he was a radio man. And, yeah. and he was doing like movies like the black castle where he was 
kind of relegated to a, a secondary role um, and then doing bit appearances in films and in stuff that then all of a sudden in the late fifties, he starts doing films like, and again, they may not be a, a level classics, but I enjoy like the haunted strangler and yes. uh, Oh, what the other one he did around that same time period. And Voodoo Island, which was yeah. written by, or the story was by Aubrey Shank, who also wrote this one. Voodoo Island's got a horrible script, but it's a f- kind of this weird, fun, oddball Saturday afternoon matinee kind of flick that sees Karloff just look, kind of looking good, even though there's not much to do in that film. Um, it's still, it's fun. And that's why I think with this one here, it's like, it's you're right. The script goes off the rails pretty quick, but yeah. Um, and you you don't come fun, into this though, expecting the Godfather, right? You don't. You're not expecting the Godfather, no. or Deer Hunter, or Citizen Kane. It is what it says on the tin. It's Boris Karloff and Frankenstein, 1970. But he is worth the price of admission. If anyone out there is on the fence about watching this or purchasing it or renting it. Go see a master. Go see the master in action and see what could have been. You know, I feel the same way with Karloff as I feel with Lugosi. There is so, you know, and Bella just breaks my heart constantly with the what his life, the the path that his life took and the path that his life could have taken. And uh, I'll, I'll be quiet now. Jeff, get up in well, here, man. Yeah. So the Karloff thing in, interested me at this period of time. And Richard, I knew you could fill in the gaps because he plays somebody that is crippled and is scarred and has been yes. injured. And it, it's this weird mix of like, you know what Karloff looked like during that time. And he was a handsome older man. You know, he's yes. I don't believe he was, you know, ugly. So how much of this was he really acting at this point? Was he having his back troubles? Was he having trouble walking or was that all acting? Um, Kind of put that into perspective. Like, was this the real Karloff? Were we seeing him or was he not? I think I think he was acting. I don't think his major medical problems had come to the fore yet. You know, because you can see that he has to kind of, you know, when he's dragging his foot, when he's hunched over a bit. Uh, I, I think that, you know, that's just, that's just Boris having some dang fun with it. Right. Cause he is a bit over the top. He chews scenery like any Doberman pincher and, you know, he's having fun because I think as Rich alluded to, he went away for a while and then Karloff comes back. And I think that when you come back, you have to embrace what got you there you break away you know because he deliberately stayed away from horror for a while he deliberately kind of you know wanted to go reinvent himself he did not want to be typecast but in your later years i think that you need to embrace it again and he he welcomed the role of elder statesman of horror he welcomed the role to kind of be the paternal figure that brought these people up and they saw him and you know i would love in my heart of hearts to hope that he had been actually rediscovered a bit where you know seeing him in these movies would drive people back to see the black cat or frankenstein or you know something else that where you're just oh. like that guy had it going on. Yeah. If you think about this time period, there probably was rediscovery because 58 was when the shock theater package yeah, was being boy. sent to TV mm-hmm. stations. So yeah, yeah. a lot of people were watching 
Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein yes. on television. And mm-hmm. there was also some of the theatrical re-releases happening around this yeah. time because I know that, you know, Dracula with Bela Lugosi was in theaters when um, the Dracula with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee came out, which was the big reason yeah. why they renamed it horror, horror of Dracula, Dracula in the US yeah. so as not to differentiate between the two. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, you mentioned that, that, you know, with Karloff and how he physically, you know, I think at this point he was, he had been dealing with back problems for 20 years plus yes. because he sustained it during the Frankenstein films. But I think by the time you get to the early sixties, when you see him in films like the Raven and the terror and, and uh, it's caught oh, up with him. I think. Yeah. And it was at the comedy of terrors. When you see him walking kind of in an odd way in the Raven, that is real because yeah. at that point, yeah, his back problems were, he wasn't wheelchair bound yet, yeah. but he was having, you know, serious back problems and, and would only get progressively worse. I don't think, yeah, in late 50s that it had quite gotten to that level. So it was probably more acting in this movie. I think but so. But unfortunately, well. kind of a precursor of what was it only is. a few years yeah. down the road for him. Yeah, yeah, with his appearance, it's hard to know without the context. What did he really look like? How yeah. healthy really was he at that time? You both have sort of dogged the script already. And I, yes. I shouldn't say that shocks me. I I just, I love it. It's so much fun. And I don't really critique it's, it for its script. and. Yes, that scene with Karloff is amazing, but someone had to write those words. And I actually highlighted in my notes, you know, the things he said, talking about knitting flesh together until it had the attribute. You know, Mary Shelley, the devil incarnate deep in the bowels of the castle. I mean, this language. Well, Mary Shelley was like applauding from her grave (laughs) because it was great. Now, let's I think Jeff has a valid point. You know, the the it's very disparate between that monologue and the rest of the film, which is, you know, it's it's just a fun film. It, it could it could be borderline comedy, you know, because the the toilet paper headed monster is not scaring anyone. You know, <laughs> this is this is more of a uh, legacy. Right. Frankenstein wants to leave a legacy. You know, he's kind of a bit of a horn dog when it comes to some of the younger women. And you can tell that, well, it's been a while since old Baron Vaughn has uh, been to the trough, so to speak. And but, you know, it makes sense in retrospect where he, he has no son. He has no heir. He has no daughter. He has no wife. He has, you know, a very abused manservant and a put upon agent that uh, tries to take care of him and reel him in occasionally. But uh, it, it's just a fun movie. I think I, I, I think that I can I think Jeff can, you know, pull me pull me back in a little bit, and not be so hard on the script because the acting is you know, it, it's, 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 it's passable. Everybody hits their marks. Everybody says their lines. There seems to be, a, I bet they had fun. It was only an eight day shoot for, I think the budget was $110,000. So they were moving fast. There wasn't like a Scorsese. Let's do this in 10. Let's get 10 different takes. And on this one, man, it's like time well, is money. Baby. Let's move. Yeah. And of that, that budget, $25,000 was Karloff. That was nice. that's what he earned for eight days. Good not, for him. Not a bad for eight him. Day not payoff. bad at all. 
No? Yeah. So uh, that's, <laughs> I, I would agree. I mean, so you talked about that, the, the monologue scene, the screenplay was, was written by Richard Landau, who is, did lots of television work and lots of genre work and, you know, Outer Limits and, and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and Rat Patrol and Six Million Dollar oh, Man. Golly, bummy. So, yeah, you, you got to give a little credit to, to, mm-hmm. to him and then to the other screenplay uh, writer, George Worthing Yates. His monster creds, them, it came from beneath the sea, Earth oh, versus yeah. flying saucers, the spider, the amazing colossal man, war of the colossal mm-hmm. beast. It goes on and on. They so, knew what they were doing, but exactly. then you see, you know, then you again, then it comes down to potential, doesn't it? Because it's a fascinating idea to revive a corpse through this new thing called atomic energy, I say. Yes. And, you know, uh, it's a fascinating concept. And, you know, look at the pedigree that Rich just listed off. There are These dudes are heavy hitters. They know yeah. what they're doing when they sit down to a typewriter and are going to bang Absolutely. out a script. So then it becomes, well, how long did they have to work on this script? Did, are, did they say first draft, final draft and just start filming it? Or did these guys get like, you know, six months to really put a good one in there. So I'm well, thinking it's the former. And I would say they probably didn't have the the best material to start with, because when you look at who the story's by, that's where mm-hmm. Aubrey Shank and Charles A. Moses. So Aubrey Shank, Shank, the only other credits is Born Reckless from 58. <laughs> uh, but Macabre, you know, that's Voodoo Island, not necessarily mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. great movies, but passable. Um, Robinson Crusoe on Mars, not a bad movie, mm-hmm. but uh, Charles A. Moses. <laughs> the only other credit I could find for Charles A. Moses, and this is where I'm like, is this the same person? Is apparently an additional crew member on Cracking Up, the 1983 Jerry Lewis movie. Um, I question whether that's the same Charles A. Moses because of the time difference and the total different path. If that is, you know, if that's not related, then this is a one and done for Charles A. Moses. Right. So I think that Richard Landau and and, and George Worthing Yates probably were a bigger part of this script. They didn't have much. They also could have been, this could have been something where they're at the end of their career. You know, the, the, you know, the studio system is gone. The, the studios don't have writers. Everything is for hire now. Yeah. And they got to, they got to go out and panhandle a little bit to make the rent. It's like, what do you got? Well, we got something called Frankenstein 1970. Can you give it a pass? And, you know, uh, I, I just think that this is a sign of the times where the studio system is dead. You know, the producer is king. The director is not. Everything is a bottom line when it comes to finances. And it's kind of like, you know, I love American International Pictures. I love that stuff. But man, you know, that the Corman Film School uh, is in session. It's like, you got seven days, you got $100,000. I've already made up a poster that says Frankenstein 1970 and go. And, you know, know, they could have been painted into a corner like that because, you know, they did stuff like that back in the day. Oh, they did. I think they benefited in this movie because they had some standing sets that they could use, yes. which really mm-hmm. did look really well, considering it was budget. gorgeous. It's yeah, a gorgeous film. 10,000, but yeah, 
Yeah, I think well, it, no, I think Jeff is right for calling us out on that. We were probably maybe a, a tad tad too harsh for what. Well, and I always have a, a bias against a movie, and I know it happens all the time. But if you get ready to make a movie and you don't even you're not sure what you're going to call it. It just, there's like no vision behind it. It is a total right, assembly right. line project. So start with the title. Yeah. Yeah. So, but not, that, that wasn't the case here. 1970 was like the fourth or fifth title they had for this. They obviously had <laughs> the vision of the future. And we learned this yes. from Spinduli last week. If you all watched it, you know, it was first called Frankenstein 1960, then 1975, then 2000. It's like, you know, I guess they had a consistent idea of the future who knows yes. why they landed on 1970, but it's a nice round number. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I guess. And then I, you know, that's, I, I don't know how much you put into that 1958. You're looking not a mathematician, but what, 12 years in the future, yes. you know, is it people in 958 saying, well, we're going to be able to harness atomic power to raise bodies at that point in time. I yeah. think that in 1970, they anticipated the, the ability to go on Amazon Prime and put an Amazon reactor in your basket <laughs> and then click on add to cart and have it delivered. You know, they're just kind of handing out nuclear weapons and atomic reactors. Kind so of then you're saying into. this is a movie well ahead of its time. Yes, it's a visionary. Yeah. It's visionary in that. Well, <laughs> hey, Sam and Frank, you know, we got the atomic reactor on the back of the truck and where are we going oh well we're going to this creepy old castle where there's only just a a, a, a man who hobbles up around a bit and he wants <laughs> us to put it in his uh basement and there's nothing suspicious about this at all and i'm sure that the department of homeland security would not be interested in this in any way shape or form so let's just <laughs> let the old duffer have some fun he's got no training we'll give him the, the owner's manual to it it's kind of like an <laughs> ikea one where you call it 800 number and are given, you know, a couple of Allen wrenches to assemble it yourself. And, uh, oh, look, the, you know, the, the, the put-upon butler is going to offer us a bit of tea for our efforts. And, you know, that's, that's, where, that's where I'm coming from. You mentioned the toilet head monster, so I, I've got an idea of what you feel about the monster. But let's talk about that a little more. Like, what, how did you well, all it feel was, about... It was, before he was wrapped in toilet paper, the fact that his head was a, a skull. And they, we yeah. don't really know, at least I didn't catch <clears throat> the significance of that. And it, it kind of goes then to what's supposed to be the punch at the end, yeah. which didn't yes. exactly work for me. I mean, I think I know what no. they were. It was trying no. to be like a twist or a yes. shock. It didn't really work yes. like that for me. But no. what, do, what do you guys think about all of that? Well, they laid the groundwork. And again, you know, Frankenstein needs an heir. Frankenstein needs, you know, 1970. It's it's a round decade. You're moving into the future. You know, you want to your genius, for lack of a better term, your medical knowledge. You want that to go into the you want an heir. You need something to take your knowledge into the future. And they touch on it in the reel-to-reel recordings where he's talking into the microphone, which I think is a really nice touch for some uh, some good monologue. You know, if you're talking in, you know, he's, he's giving you exposition, he's giving you backstory, yeah. Yeah. and he's, you know, because, you know, anytime that they're doing an autopsy or something, the doctor is literally talking into a microphone that's being hung over the table. Which, so, I'm sorry you know, to interrupt, looks a lot like a yeah. drive-in speaker. It does. It does. You know, you expect Rudy Valley to start singing it at any given moment. But uh, 
there are some nice touches and the skull threw me out a bit because not only is it physically impossible, <laughs> you know, because now you're like, well, what's holding the next stuff in? You know, if you've just, you know, is there a lot of, is, did he stitch it up? Is there some, some bandages there? You know, then your, your logical mind starts taking over, which it should never do. Logical mind, knock no it off. No place for logical mind in any of these movies, but uh, you know, it, it, God, such potential. So I always talk about potential because he's looking at the hand. That's something else that, you know, why don't you just start with a, just do the butler. You know, you don't need to go out and rob graves or attach hands to various parts of bodies. And, you know, that was always kind of the weakness of even the hammer stuff where it's like, just go get a dang body. That's all I got to do. One complete body, you know, pick someone, you know, pick a super genius with a, with a Adonis like body and kill them, reinvigorate them, you know, make them do your evil bidding. But, you know, he, you know, where Karloff is looking at the stitching and he's talking about it. He's talking about the work that he's done. Again, he's giving you backstory. He's giving you exposition. He kind of telegraphs the way that he's moving into the future with this, you know, atomic energy. I would never have had this in the past. This is so much more efficient than crawling up to a tower and praying for lightning. Uh, so I get what they were going. And the fact that the monster is wrapped up doesn't bother me, but Jeff, as you know, the skull, you're like, what, what is, is he talking to a skull? Is it Yorick? Or did he know him well? Or what are we doing here? So, and then, you know, the punch at the end, you know, I get it while he's what, why the guy's walking around with a toilet paper covered head. And, you know, here's the thing too. I'm going to call this out again. Logical mind does not need to be here, but before he put the eyes in it, how does it find its way around the crypt to go kill people? Is he is he is he is he is he echolocating like a bat? Is like, he like I'm hearing he... a I'm hearing a scuffle over here? Maybe I should go kill whoever is making that noise. Well, you know? but he actually you know. makes it up the stairs and actually finds <laughs> yes, a specific yes. room at one point. And he and that was literally has empty eye sockets. Yes, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Car Carla struggles with that logical mind and, you know, and, yes. and she's getting better with it. But right. even then she kind of looked at me and she says, okay, she says, how did he do that? Yes. You know, I'm like, well, yes. Carla, you just Carla. turn it off. You gotta Stop. go with turn it. it off, Carla. <laughs> turn it off. <laughs> it made for Maybe a good Whose brain was in there at that time? Maybe it was muscle memory or something. Uh, yeah, because he really didn't kill, you know, it was the butler's brain, right? That's the one he finally got around to. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, because he uh, said, yours is not the brain I would have chosen, but at least you're obedient. Yes, exactly. And that's well, maybe very the, chilling, you know. There are the moments. Of, there are moments. Of, oh, yeah. that opening. That opening is terrifying. Mm -hmm. I mean, oh, it's legitimately yes. scary and well filmed and atmospheric. Oh, incredibly well done. Yeah, it harked and back to all the butler had to do was run out of the room. All <laughs> he had to do was run out of the room. But again, no, he is he is a dutiful butler. And, and even the eyeless this cower and you're dead. Yeah. So even the eyeless monster, there's a couple scenes in the basement where he's getting ready to just almost get the woman before she steps yes. out from behind that. That's yes. pretty well done. I thought it is. It is well I mean, it done. It is well me, done. But it was, I thought effective. 
Which it's is weird, kind of know? surprising when you look at so the director Howard W. Uh, Cook, the Coke? Coke, Howard and, Howard Coke. Is he related um, to Derek or not? Is it? Uh, or I, don't, I don't know. Uh, or the question. or the Coke brothers. Yes. You know, yeah. So. Not a lot mm-hmm. of, of of big movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got Jungle Heat, um, a movie that fascinates me just on the title alone. Bop Girl Goes Calypso. Uh, (laughs) well you know you can only bop so much you know and you know the bop market may have been dying and calypso may have been on the upswing so a girl's got to do what a girl's got to do when this is true calypso also did andy hardy comes home which was the the weird entry in the andy hardy series because the andy hardy series had been done for like 15 years and then they bring back an older mickey rooney (laughs) <laughs> to go comes home and his dad is dead which that was one well, of the key parts of those movies right it's like they the left out the talk. word retirement from the title andy hardy comes to the retirement home yes, i think that's yes. i think that may have been left off the posters for perfectly good marketing yes, reasons yes yeah <laughs> anyway, well, he was more yeah, well known as a producer right i mean he was a big time producer yeah. later in his yeah. career yeah much much more well known there Again, and that someone else perhaps getting another start in horror or B movies. Nothing wrong with that. Hey, you got to people got to pay rent. You know, people got to put food on the table, and it's a small. It was a small community out there, and it's like, well, Howard's been wanting to direct, or eh, we'll give it. The, here's a hundred grand. Here's twenty grand. Go direct this picture. See what happens. So, so I have really, a theory. Uh, I Richard knows well, and if you listen, Bill. I do um, listen. I, I have theories that go beyond the movie. So I love the movie within a movie. So, you know, the beginning, yes. it, you know, and you pull back and then even. I did not expect that. Again, I hadn't oh, seen this one before. And good. I'm like, God, that is the slowest walking monster. <laughs> but it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. And then when they holler cut, I'm like, what? Because I really. And then later they do the TV show that you mentioned, Karloff's monologue. That's part of it. And you kind of know that's that because they talk about him doing the TV show, but that's twice they've sort of like kind of fooled us that it's been a movie within a movie. What if this entire movie is within another movie and they just, we never pull back to see that this is all inside another package? Jeff Owens, Jeff Owens, don't you try to inception this movie? No, that would don't make you it. Try to inception this movie. That way, that, that would be to me a bigger punch than the the punch they have. Plus, right. it explains you know some of the humor and consistency and and things that you're pointing out about the script. I just think that if I imagine that in my mind, it elevates the movie for me. Whatever so it takes, Jeff. <laughs> whatever, whatever, whatever gets you, whatever allows you to sleep at night, and you know you can elevate Frankenstein nineteen seventy to Citizen Kane status by inceptioning it. But we're not going. I'm afraid the judge is going to have to overrule you on that one, my friend. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> I think you, you got to give at least some credit because the cast, aside from a couple, didn't do a lot. I mean, this this is one of those films where. You've got a couple of of cast members who are, are seasoned or in the process of being seasoned. Yeah. Boris Karloff, yeah. obviously, he's he's the name recognition. Um, the character of Douglas Rowe was played by Don Redberry. Ultimately, had like two hundred and fifty eight credits, lots of TVs and yes. westerns to his cred. Um, did a movie called The Swarm, 
which I, have you, nice. you covered that recently, didn't you, Jeff? He's gone wild, man. He's gone wild. Yeah. yeah. Bionic woman, $6 million man again. And I nice. thought this was interesting. So he played the character of Tarantula in the Batman Black Widow two-parter. Um, and Mike Lane, who played Hans Himmler and the monster, played Daddy Longlegs in the same two-parter on, on Batman. Uh, it's kind of the so they had a moment. Frankenstein 1970 reunion on that. <laughs> Apparently, like, yeah. We in that crap? I was too. Yeah, that was the monster. So Mike Lane also played Frankenstein again. Frank Enstein in a <laughs> oh, 1976 boy. TV series called The Monster Squad. <laughs> which Monster I, Squad, absolutely. Yeah, I, you know, and as well as some other stuff like Outer Limits and Sixth Sense. But you look at like some of the women. Charlotte Austin played Judy Stevens, only 20 credits to her name, a couple of other genre related mm-hmm. films, Gorilla at Large, Bride and the Beast. She became be- better known as an antique dealer um, yeah. in her post Hollywood career. Carolyn Hayes, played by Jaina Lund, only 18 credits. Other films were like High School Hellcats and Hot Car Girl. All right. Um, you're Tom giving Duggan. me some ideas here. Yeah. <laughs> I know. So, <laughs> Tom are these Duggan official played... nominations? Yes. Or are you yes. just sure? Sure. I mean, hot, I haven't hot done any. Ju- I haven't done any juvenile delinquent stuff. So, hot yeah. car girl and Bob girl goes Calypso sounds like a double feature. I don't know. It does. Now you got Tom Duggan played Mike Shaw again. Only twenty six credits, including Andy Hardy comes home. So clearly, Tom Duggan and and Howard. Uh, Coke or Cook decided to form a friendship and reunited on Andy Hardy comes home. Uh, now he did die in 1969. He would have had more film credits. I think he died. And this is interesting. You know, I always mention uh, film star deaths, you know, and how many times do we talk about somebody dying at a young age because of cancer illness? I don't think as weird as it sounds that we've ever had someone, or I've ever mentioned someone who actually died in a car accident. He died at the age of 53 in a just an ordinary car accident. Nothing out of the ordinary about it. And I was like, got to think, it's like, I know films, obviously we've lost some film stars to car accidents, you know, James Dean, Tom Mix, you know, but not anyone we've ever talked about on the show. So, um, you know me, I'm the angel of death. And I always, I always get fascinated by when we see some of these stars and we find out, well, gosh, they only did two more movies and then they passed. But this one was kind of uh, kind of stood out to me as something a little little different. So you've got a lot of cast members that didn't have a ton of credits, and um, but they so did a really good job. They did a good what job. They were given. They did. Yes. You know, it was tight. You know, the dialogue was snappy. You know, they delivered them. You know, a little tongue in cheek, but it was you could tell that they were having fun. Sometimes when you see these B movies, often C or Z grade films, you can tell when someone is like. Yeah, you're not an actor, you know, you're you're somebody they picked up down down the street and you're also probably doing catering and you're doing stunts and you're the chauffeur. These these were actors who might not have had 258 film credits, but did a good job. They did. They did. and, And delivered a solid film, which is obviously elevated because you've got the presence of Boris Karloff, but his supporting cast. Yeah, did a pretty good job. 
I think so. And it's almost like we, it's a it's a worm or a Boris. Which came first? Did did they raise their game because one of the masters of horror was in the room with them? Or you know, because I, I would like to think so. I would like to think that you know this is a true legend in the film industry and the horror genre. And you know, like you said, some of these people didn't have a lot of experience or they weren't much longer for this earth, or, you know, maybe the women fell in love and got married and, you know, quit the business. But I know that if I was an actor on that set, I would really want to raise my game to match Karloff really. And just as, even if, even to just as a tribute, you know, to, to make the old man's time there, a little bit more enjoyable because it just looks like a fun film that they, you know, I just get that vibe that between takes, everyone was just having a good time. And, you know, the, the patter is there, the dialogue is fun. You know, we mentioned briefly the, uh, the lax uh, marital vows, you know, there's some little dips into uh, naughtiness for lack of a better term. And that was fun too. It was fun. It's it's a fun movie. Yeah, this I think late fifties, you could start doing some of those little more tawdry mm-hmm. storylines a little bit that you couldn't have done too many years earlier, unless you were doing them. You didn't find those in sci-fi or horror films. You might no, find you it really in drama. Didn't. It was very unique yeah. for that type of uh, insertion. Yeah, absolutely. This seems better than like most. I, I would call this a B plus movie, maybe because. You know, everything we've talked about, it's screaming B-movie, B-movie. But it to me, it's just a little better than that. Um, and like the stars, the cast, before telling me that or doing some research, I would have thought every one of them was a Hollywood veteran that yeah, I could have gone and seen in a dozen other movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it would just, not have surprised me. Yeah, it's a, it's a good quality that I think is I think it elevates it. I'm, I'm very fond of this movie. Plus. The technology, we, we talked a little bit about the 70s, but the crowning achievement in technology is the garbage disposal slash airplane toilet thing that he disposes of pieces and parts in. That is yeah. just... Is, he's like, he's thinking to himself, is this a clue that could get me put in jail or on death row? I'm going to open up this little metal lid here it's gonna and I'm going to put it in, in there. And it's like, you hear a noise, it's like... And it's like done, you know. That was hilarious. That was you know, a brilliant just like, science fiction. <laughs> yeah. It's from the I future. They think that that's like the very first on-screen toilet sound effect. <laughs> they said they 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 don't find any other evidence that and that had ever been used because at that point you still couldn't really show that anywhere. No, you know, it's no. like. You know, that nobody was... nobody poops in the fifties, man. No, 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 nobody goes to the bathroom in the fifties. I'm sorry, I'm, no. that's just not allowed, my friends. You know, hold it in until the sixties, they... and then yeah. we'll let you go to the bathroom. Yeah, actually, it wasn't until the seventies. Yeah, it was. I think Archie Bunker. I think wasn't that one of the first? I think that oh, where he brings the newspaper out. He's in there. You I think know, that's they the said that was the noise. first time that you heard a toilet that would make, flush. That would make good sense. Yeah, I could see. Yeah. That. I mean, because Norman see- Lear, he tweaked a lot of people back in the day. So I could say he's like, you can't you can't have a toilet noise, Norman. 
Well, I think that's also the joke I think was in the Brady Bunch is like you see the bathroom, but you never actually see the toilet. And, and, you know, so it's like apparently the Brady's didn't didn't poop either in the 1960s. Well, the Brady's were the first couple to actually sleep in the same bed together. This is true. You know, so, you know, Mike and Carol had it going on, man. You know, you can't you don't have the two twin beds. No, push those things together. They already had six kids, and so, you know. They could have went for nine for a good soccer team. Then you get or, into you the know. whole Cousin Oliver you know, thing, <laughs> and that's, that, that's just where things go bad. So Yeah. Well, guys, I think the other movie's going to be starting before long. Let, let's wrap this up. What else do oh, either of well, you have right. to say about what I think <laughs> is a wonderful movie, Frankenstein 1970? I, I, I can interject, so I, let, we can let Bill wrap things mm-hmm. up. I, okay. I do want to share some old school technology here. You know, we like to mention books occasionally, the old dead trees in our hands. And I've got a stack of Boris Karloff books, but one, this one is called Boris Karloff and his films by Paul M. Jensen from 1974. And this is what he had to say about Frankenstein 1970, because you won't find a lot of info on this particular movie Mm -hmm. in, in most Boris Karloff books, because Boris just kind of, he came in, he did his eight days, $25,000. Thank you. Have a nice day. And actually, while he was, shortly after he signed to do this movie, he signed to do the Veil television series for Hal Roach Studios, the TV series that never did get released and became kind of a this odd curiosity when it popped up from something weird video decades later. Many people didn't even know it existed. And the fact that it exists in, in such pristine print. So he was he was in the mix. He was doing other stuff. But this is what Paul Jensen wrote. Um, films, too, tried for up-to-date variations on the old standards, including I Was a Teenage Frankenstein and The Return of Dracula. Among these pictures was Frankenstein 1970, originally planned as Frankenstein 1960, an allied artist quickie that starred Karloff as a grandson of the original scientist. Released in the summer of 1958, the film is an interesting failure that tries to be an affectionate salute to the old style, but instead hovers too close to imitation and cliche. The only times when it succeeds at old-time gothic horror are significantly both phony. One scene is the film's opening in which a monster relentlessly chases a girl through darkness, past barren tree limbs and into a river, Finally, this is revealed as a sequence being shot for a TV show honoring the monster's 140th anniversary. Another scene is a monologue improvised by Karloff as his introduction to the show. In it, he explains the final fate of the monster. And then he goes on to kind of do some quotes. I kind of felt he was a little harsh on on his his interpretation, but you will find most people are. I've got several other Karloff books and, and it was like passing reference, forgettable film, not worth your time. And I'm like, I disagreed with all of them, including this one. I think this is a case where all of those comments were were mostly from older books or there just wasn't much written on it. If you think 1974, this is a movie that probably wasn't widely seen and I know that for the longest time wasn't even available on DVD when it got released in that Karloff classics, or it was like Lugosi, Karloff Lugosi classics mini box set that had four films. And this was one of them. And it was paired up with, I think 
The Walking Dead, the 1936 Karloff film, which is, you know, obviously Karloff in his prime. And then I paired off with a couple of, you know, of Lugosi's later films. It just seemed like it, it, you know, it's a film that I think is getting a little more love in recent years. We're kind of taking a look at this. And as we're talking, there is things to love about this. It's not perfect. And there's some script deficiencies. And you've got the toilet paper monster. But you've got some really good stuff. You've got a good supporting cast. Visually, it looks great. I thought the opening sequence totally worked for me. And that Karloff monologue, if in fact this is accurate and it's and it was improvised, oh yeah, just really enhances Gosh. that scene even more. No kidding. So makes me uh, retract my words and uh, think a little less of the script. <laughs> yeah. Karloff's like, hold my beer. I'll show you how this is done, kids. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 So, right. so final thoughts. I mean, I, you know, for, for me, I, I guess I enjoyed it. Um, this was not my first time viewing. I've seen it multiple times. And actually, I think I continued to appreciate it even more every time I've seen it. Jeff, was this your? No, I had, I had seen it as a, a kid and I don't particularly, it wasn't memorable really, but I watched it a couple of years ago, wrote about it. Loved it. And then I think it, the Blu-ray is fairly recent in the last couple of years from Warner Archive. I just immediately purchased it. It was so nice to have that on my shelf and pull it off. Uh, even though I did also fast forward through Spinguli to hear his comments and notes about it. But I primarily watched it on the DV and I, I adore the movie. I think, you know, this was my first time watching this. And I'm definitely going to watch it again. Uh, I came in guns a-blazing with some, you know, with a couple of likes and a couple of hits, a couple of hits, a couple of misses. But I think that Rich hit it right on the head that if you take each part of the film individually, it rises above. You know, we've got this beautiful, you know, black and white cinemascope film that on the Blu-ray that I have, it's just immaculate and it's sharp and it's crisp. And you can tell that each, you know, depend, you know, throw the script out the window, just judge it on the visuals alone. It's an amazing film. It's gorgeous. It's well lit. These are people who know what the heck they are doing because lighting black and white is different from lighting color. And you've got to think in terms of gradient monochrome and they did a wonderful job. Uh, Karloff, you know, chef kiss, he's, he's the man, you know, but I think, I think you are right that if you take the, some of the parts and this is definitely a B plus film, uh, it, it's one of those films. I think that you can revisit it again and again, it, it's comfort food. It's, it's, you know, a big plate of pasta or beef stew where you know what you're going to get when you come to this movie and it's something you can put on in the background. It's something that you can have in your life, you know, once a year viewing to see the master in action before the decline. And, uh, you know, I'm very pleased that I picked this, even though I thought it was going to be filmed in the 1970s. That's my, uh, I'm an idiot. What do I know? But uh, thank you both again for inviting me to the drive-in. I'm glad we time travel each summer and get to hang out with each other 
and uh, enjoy our time together. You both, uh, I love you both. You both have been a great blessing to myself and my show. If there's ever anything I can do, if you want me back again, despite your listeners' protests, I would appreciate <laughs> it. Uh, but I love you both. And God bless. And I'm just so happy to be here. Congratulations on the show. I wish you nothing but the best in the future. Thank you. You are Thank you. very kind. Very kind. One minute left to top off the evening with a treat from our snack bar. Still time if you hurry. Last call for refreshments, folks. Go right this second to get something good to eat and drink to enjoy now or during the rest of the show. The finest quality ingredients are in the fixings of the delicious foods you'll find waiting to tempt your appetite at the snack bar. Extra special good hamburgers, wonderful donuts, ice-cold, thirst-crunching drinks. Pizza generously sliced, steaming hot, fresh coffee, ice cream in many flavors. Showtime, folks. Enjoy the show. This was my father's world, Mr. Barnett. The shrieking of mutilated victims became the music of his life. The blood of a thousand men and women was spilled within these walls. Limbs twisted and broken. Flesh burned black. Starring Vincent Price, truly a master of the macabre. John Carr in a challenging role. Barbara Steele, more blood-chilling than in Black Sunday. And introducing taunting Luana Anders. Nicholas. Is that you? Elizabeth? While we were up here mourning her, she was alive. Struggling to be free. You are lying, sir. When Maria screamed, where were you? You lie! going to torture you, Isabella. I'm going to make you suffer for your faithlessness to me. <laughs> you harlot! All the violence of angry seas. The unseen forces of the unknown. The unforgettable memories of a long-forgotten childhood. All these you will feel in your very blood. Do you know where you are, Bartholomew? You are about to enter hell.
Richard. I just, I love that movie. Every time I see it, I love it more and more. Let's just kind of sit here and talk about it for a few minutes. Let everyone else leave. You know, I hate sitting in traffic. So what, what do you think of the pit and the pendulum? Oh, okay. Vincent Price. So immediately you're, you're in good territory. You got that warm blanket around you again and so many vibrant colors and it's so it's it's classic price in a gothic setting and i agree this is a movie that i think every time i see it i appreciate it more and more it's just from this golden era of price where he was doing the poe adaptations which let's be honest really don't have much to do with poe sure we've got a pit and yes we have a pendulum but they almost seem shoehorned in at one point. Doesn't matter because it, the rest of the film is great. You've got a great cast, small but mighty. Price is just at his best in this movie. I mean, we get to see all aspects of Price, right? I mean, we we get to see yeah. normal, subdued Price. We see terrified Price. We see evil Price. It's it's a tour de force for Vincent. Man, it's 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 a lot of fun. A lot of fun. I wonder if he improvised any of his lines. You know, we pointed out in the last movie some of the lines and then we came to the conclusion perhaps Karloff improvised them. But Price has similar dialogue, which I would have credited to the script. Richard Matheson, great writer, evokes words like spawn of his deprived blood, malignant atmosphere of castle, you know, things like this that, yeah. that come out of his mouth. And it's just golden the out of vincent price's mouth the way he says them and, and it's just wonderful i don't know how often he would do that I, I think that he was just such a master at here's the script here's the words and then he would just kind of make them his own again this is a roger corman production so you're you're dealing with a very tight schedule a a smaller budget but they made everything look so good on screen I would suspect that their price had some input into certain things, certainly at this point of his career and certainly in this time period when he was doing so much. I think probably even more so as you're getting into the late 60s, early 70s. I mean, he was very well solidified at that point in this genre. He probably had a bit more influence, maybe with movies like Madhouse or Theater of Blood. I think when you get to that time period, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was there was some spontaneity happening on on set. Absolutely. I'm just almost really speechless. Like, I don't know what to say about this movie. I, you mentioned Roger Corman. So you, there's like, you know, two Roger Corman there. You know, there one is. It's like the any even in these, you will see images and scenes from other movies or they've taken scenes from this. So there's still that. But yet the quality is just different it's not even like the same person no there, there was there's roger corman when he's doing poe adaptations it for example it just immediately elevates the movie you've got bigger budgets you've got vibrant color and then you've got corman working on a on a shoestring budget with a lesser cast much like we just talked about in frankenstein 1970 you've got a supporting cast of, of and mostly people who didn't do a whole lot Yet they did it really well, better than a lot of other B-movie films where you've got people that only did a handful of films. And there's a reason they only did a handful of films because they weren't any good and would sometimes kind of pull you out of the moment when you've got somebody who can't act very well. But 
you know, with Corman, yeah, he he had two levels to him. And this is definitely Corman at his A game. I don't, I don't even know if you can, you know, Price certainly is gets a lot of the credit, but you've also got some really good supporting cast. I mean, Barbara Steele, I think John Kerr is 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 really good in his role. Even Luana Anders, who didn't necessarily have a lot of creds in, in the horror genre. She definitely does really well in this film for the role that she has. And you've got an excellent script, excellent dialogue from Richard Matheson. We don't really need to mention is if you at this point, five <laughs> years into the show, if you don't know who Richard Matheson is, shame on you. But Incredible Shrinking Man, House of Usher, The Raven, Comedy of Terrors, Twilight Zone, Trilogy of Terror, and first season episode of Star Trek, The Enemy Within, second <laughs> Star Trek reference in this episode. Thank you very much. No, I don't have any Who references. I don't. I mean, I can I'll dangle this in front of you. We will. I, I, and I can, I can also stretch a little bit. Vincent Price was at one time kind of associated with the potential Doctor Who film in the late 70s. I don't know if you knew this or not. Tom mm. Baker, the fourth doctor during his era, there was a, a script that he had, an idea for Doctor Who meets Scratchman, and essentially Doctor Who meets the devil, the doctor going up against a devil-like figure. Vincent Price was who was being bantered about as being the potential to play the devil in this film that never did get made. Uh, I think it would have been awesome if it had. I mean, gosh, Tom Baker and Vincent Price, my mind explodes yeah. at what potentially could have happened on screen because the fourth doctor is so, Tom Baker is just one of the best and was just so man, so maniacal at times in, in his performance and so the smiles and all the teeth and just seeing him in the dialogue I can imagine in my mind. Now, it's, there's actually a book of that, I think, that Tom Baker was associated with that that was eventually written that plays the story out. But anyway, Vincent Price, that's the my Doctor Who contribution, and you're dangling something more in front of me. Well, so. it's cheating, but you'll get it. So take okay, what you can I, get. I cheated because this is, you know, <laughs> Vincent Price was a thought to be in a movie that never did get made. <laughs> that's my connection. That's my connection. Okay. I backtrack just a sec. You mentioned Vincent Price going through those different stages of, that we got to see him. In one particular scene, which, by the way, there are there are scenes that I think you could consider maybe a little longer, a little slower, but they don't in any way, shape, or form drag. They are full of atmosphere, full of dread. They have a reason for being slow. They don't, to me, they never slowed the movie down, even though, like I acknowledged, okay, we're moving slowly here, but that was perfectly fine. Anyway, one of those scenes is towards the end when Vincent is going through the secret passage and going down the stone steps, and there's a lot of cobwebs. From the beginning of that scene to the last, I think we see him run the gambit of his different types of characters. From something as little as the first time he runs into cobwebs and they're on his face, he kind of freaks out and he's yeah. very much getting him. By the end, he's walking through those cobwebs, just letting them hang like he doesn't even know they're there on his face. You not only see it through the course of the whole movie, but you see it within one extended scene and it's just wonderful to watch. I agree 100%. I want to also, we don't talk a lot. We sometimes call out the music. The Les Baxter did the music. I think he did a lot of the 
Corman Poe films. Yeah, I like the music, but what I really want to credit is the use of the music in the movie, the way that it's used from the very beginning, the sort of plunking kind of clinking as the colored paints are going for the crest, yes. you know, sets an unsettling mood. It does what a great score does. It contributes to what's happening. It doesn't distract from it. It's just like almost it's part of it. This one doesn't have any of the like stingers to tell you, okay, now it's when you need to jump. Now it's when you need to be scared. Les Baxter. Yeah, it's true. We don't talk about the music enough sometimes in these films. I am not as prolific in my knowledge of the masters of, of movie soundtracks, but some obviously stand out more than others. And Les Baxter is one. I've got a, uh, a vinyl record of uh, some of Les Baxter's films that it's amazing to listen to. And uh, Les, Les Baxter, of course, not only just films, but also did other music is a regular addition to the weekly retro cocktail hour. So for anyone who listens to that, that's produced locally here, but you can get it on the internet and it's broadcast all over the world. Highly recommend you tune that in. If you love these movies, especially in this, you know, atomic age, man, retro cocktail hours up your alley. Unless Baxter is often heard on the show, his daughter is actually a member of the retro cocktail hour Facebook page. Listens to the show and, and actually chimes in conversations. And she loves that her father gets recognized uh, on the show with great regularity. In fact, not too, about a month ago, maybe, they did an entire episode dedicated to the music of Les Baxter. Oh, so, wow. And I don't think, is this the first Corman Poe film we've talked about? No, we did um, the one anthology. We did. I'm trying to think. I know this was now this was the second film that he did uh, in, in his series, um, which is incidentally was shot in 15 days. So he had twice as many days to make this one as Frankenstein 1970. And I'm thinking for Corman, 15 days was a luxury <laughs> compared yeah. to like we mentioned earlier, The Terror which, you know, is a movie that he made in, what, three days or something like that, because he, he had two or three extra days with all the sets. So I'll make another movie with, with Karloff and Jack Nicholson, uh, you know, a movie that makes no sense, but it looks good. But my point is, you made the comment about Poe and these movies don't really have much to do with Poe. And it's interesting that you mentioned that. We were talking offline before we started. I had written about this movie before I thought, but I could not find any evidence of that. And then it all came swimming back to me by the time I finished watching the movie is I, it was one of my first writing things for We Belong Dead. It was issue 10 or 19. Ooh, my eyes are bad. I think issue 19. And I looked at that fact about the Poe elements that are in these movies, specifically Pit of the Pendulum. And yeah, any of Poe's story, a lot of them are poems. How do you make a hour and a half movie? Well, you take elements from it. And there's a surprising number of elements in these Poe films that, sure, they're not necessarily re related to a specific story or poem, but they are Poe. So these movies can, in essence, then really be Poe films. The fact that they're based on a one specific story is kind of misleading, but there are elements of that big set piece with the pit and the pendulum that are lifted from the poem. And you probably wouldn't know that. And you'd think, well, this has very little, like the paintings on the wall. Yeah. Uh, that is from the story or the poem. If you read 
And then the other thing is it, it bringing elements from other stories. I mean, many of these stories have the buried prematurely theme that uh, was in post stories. This one does as well. I just wanted to call that out and, and recommend you all can read more about that in We Belong Dead number 19. There's actually, I think, what, eight films that are considered part of the Poe cycle with Price appearing in seven of those. Uh, House of the Usher, 1960, was the first film. Then came uh, Pit and the Pendulum. Then Tales of Terror in 62. Premature Burial in 62 was made with, uh, what, Ray Milland was not done with Price. I've actually never seen that. I have it. And it's just one of those films that I... I tend to, for whatever reason, steer away from, because in my mind, it's like, it's Corman, it's Poe, but where's Price? Yeah. Ray Milan's great, but it, it throws me off. The Raven in 63, The Haunted Palace in 63, The Mask of the Red Death in 64, and Tomb of Lygia in 64. We need to do more of those, absolutely. Yeah. Vincent Price, I, I wouldn't have to sell that to, to Carla. She adores Vincent Price. And anytime a Vincent Price movie is on, it's, you know, yep, we've got to watch it. You know, I don't know how many times her and I alone have already watched The House on Haunted Hill. And these films, they all look good. So I'm sure, have you seen The Premature Burial? You know, I'm same with you. I have not. I've got it. Yeah, curiosity has is killing me now. It's like, okay, how does that visually look? Because I know how all the others look. And they all have a very similar look and feel and style. How does Ray Milan's presence in that film, does it potentially change it? Or is it, you know, very much the same vein? Might have to bump that to the top of the list. Um, yeah, on the story, it's got twists and turns. It's wonderfully constructed mis mystery. You don't really know what's going on. Good tw twists. I'm trying to think of things to point out. Maybe I should just shut up and let you talk about it, but I, I just love everything about this. I'm looking back some comments that I wrote when I covered this for the blog. And one thing that I commented was that it here he gets to play a sympathetic and tortured soul slipping into madness. And he, it's, he does it so incredibly well. And the images of him slinking around the pendulum as it swings, you know, out of control. Those are, are truly classic. It's just, it's such a iconic scene. And it, and it looks cool because Corman removed every other frame from the pendulum sequence to make it appear as if it was moving twice as fast. Mm. A little bit of movie magic there. Uh, in case you're worried, it's like, well, was that a real pendulum swinging above? Of course it wasn't. It was actually made of wood and rubber, which I thought looked pretty darn convincing actually on camera. Give it credit. Roger Corman could make an A-list film, I guess, when he had the money and the time. Sometimes he cranks out the films like he's not even, you know, doesn't even blink. Other times he takes more time and effort with them. And I think Roger Corman tends to, he's a legend. But I think the mainstream film community doesn't give Roger Corman credit where credit's due because he's involved in so many films that are in the schlock category, right? Because he, yeah. he's still producing films to this day. Just talk about that set for a minute. That's just on its own, such an effective sequence. And as that, I mean, who can't squirm as that blade gets closer to his oh, body? I know. And then when it actually makes contact, this is like way getting into that. But you know how it kind of 
kind of tugs at his shirt. You know, you think like, okay, really sharp blade. It's just going to slice him when he gets there. But, and it does yeah. a little bit because you see a line of blood, but it kind of just tugs. Yeah. It just makes me think, Ooh, that blade's not as sharp. It's a little old and rusty. And that's like worse than a sharp blade. I mean, Oh yeah. Cause you can imagine more that painful. It's, <laughs> it's got a little, little jags, yes. right. You know, and yeah. it, like, it catches the thread of the material. Yeah. Whether and then that... when we see the long shot, is that, is it a matte painting around that do you know that, that almost surely wasn't a real set yeah that's a good question i would say probably real. yeah i i would say probably a matte painting that looks incredibly real yeah absolutely and there's the matte painting at the beginning of the the castle which it's one of those matte paintings i love not 100 percent realistic but so artistic and beautiful that it you buy it now, th this is available. It's been available on, on a, a variety of, of formats and versions. It, it's currently available on Blu-ray in the Vincent Price Collection, Volume 1, from Shout Factory for like $42 right now. This was the volume that was out of print, and they put it back in print, minus all of the Vincent Price PBS introductions, because they lost the rights for that which is in itself a tragedy because I love those Vincent Price introductions. I wish that I, I would have the original volume one, but I'm very thankful that they did put it back out because this is one that I lamented on before that I, I missed out the opportunity the first go around and it's paired up with a, a lot of great films. But there's an extra on where there's the opening prologue that has scenes of the character of Catherine Medina played by Luana Anders. And she's in an asylum. And this was apparently done after the completion of the film. And it was done to help pad out the running time for television distribution. It is an odd sequence. And I'm kind of glad that it's not part of the film today because it really doesn't have anything else to do with the rest of the movie. I mean, it, I guess it gives an idea of, what happens to Catherine at the end of the story. But it, to me, it, it doesn't quite fall in line and it's not necessary. It's not necessary. One of those cases where sometimes you get extra scenes filmed to pad out for television. That's cool. Or deleted scenes are used or restored. Uh, Star Trek two is, is one of those films that had, deleted scenes from the original theatrical release and they actually enhance the story because you learn that the character of, of Peter Preston, who is brought Scotty brings aboard the bridge of the enterprise is actually his nephew, which is why he's so emotionally torn. That was cut out of the theatrical version, but was there and restored when they did the ABC television version. This is a case where eh, didn't really need it because it just doesn't quite, go with the rest of the film yeah i'm glad you talked about that because on the version i saw which is that second collection set it's under bonus features and it just says rare pro prologue and i didn't find any explanation of how it was used or what but it is weird i kept trying to think how does that fit in and i guess it is sort of like an epilogue really isn't it but if you don't know i mean it's kind of like if you see this and then you see the start of the movie you're like so she was having a bad day and now she's perfectly fine. There's no, well, it does kind of, she does kind of seem out of it a lot of the time. I mean, she's very soft-spoken and understated and doesn't have it much definitely energy. Leave you still 
kind of questioning is like, so what did this have to do with the rest of the movie? And was she in an asylum and now she's out of an asylum? You know, I don't know. Is that, is this a red herring maybe? And it, I mean, I don't know. It just, it seems like a really odd sequence. So fun that it exists. Anyway, uh, you know, I mentioned Luana Anders real quick. She, she's in a couple of other films, uh, Dementia 13, uh, which I have not seen for a long time. I saw snippets of it on the Sven Tooney TV show that airs after Sven Gulli, which actually got me thinking I need to revisit that film. The movie Night Tide. Did you do Night Tide? I just or, did, yeah. Yes, I was going to say, I have not read your, your thoughts on there, but I thought, I'm pretty sure you just did Night Tide. So she was in that other TV and supporting roles. Here I am, the angel of death. She died in 1996 at the age of 58 of uh, breast cancer. So she died at a, at a young age, but she was pretty much, I, I can't recall. I, I think she was still acting, but not as frequently by that point. I also want to mention real quick, of course, Barbara Steele, we mentioned her as Elizabeth Medina. And then you've got John Kerr, who plays Francis Bernard, Barnard, did lots of TV, was in South Pacific, the Peyton Place TV series. I will mention Barbara Steele is not in it very much. However, it's a fantastic part and it really plays up to her strengths, especially at the end. Oh, yeah. The the final scenes of her. And even in that little bit, we see her, how much she deserves that. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, and to think what happens to her character no spoilers here in case you haven't seen this. Whenever I see that scene, I imagine myself in that position is like, my God, how painful and how lonely that would be. And, and to know that there's there's no help coming your way. Uh, anyway, I highly love this movie. Yep. Two thumbs up. Five stars. Whatever you want to give it. This is a classic, classic Vincent Price, classic Roger Corman. Check it out. You can rent it on Amazon Prime for $3.99. And you know right now it's showing at the Rochester Drive-In. It is. It is. So if you've got a time machine, you can go back in time to, to catch Vincent Price and Boris Karloff and a couple of other movies that we're not going to stick around and certainly not quite on the same level as the first two films. We've got the attack of the giant leeches is coming up, which is actually, I kind of do enjoy that movie for its sheer, incredibly poor budget and special effects. There is something weird about that film and the headless ghost, which not a bad film, but definitely not, Karloff, Vincent Price level of, of goodness. You know, as we're, I guess, close to wrapping things up here, we've got to take advantage because there's a special. We're getting some free gas for our car. Oh, we thank God. Fig- I know. We need to figure <laughs> that out, uh, how, how we can get a hold of that. It was in the ad, but I don't know how that works. So we probably need to check with somebody before they, they start shutting down totally. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Another another trip to the past. Yeah, I kind of lost track of time, but everyone else has left. I think we can hit the road uh, as we're driving back. Let's do our new business. We've got a little bit of that to do. Uh, anything else here as we wave goodbye to the Rochester Drive-In? No. Right. Okay, well, I will, we will take a quick break while I get out of here and get on the highway. I don't want to start, you know, reading my notes on my phone <laughs> until I'm on the highway. <laughs> 
So uh, we'll be right back. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. We are back. There aren't a lot of home video releases in July. However, there's some some good ones, some significant ones. July 5th, believe is at the time this post this will be next week we have three tv movies from kino lorber they've really been putting out these tv movies and i don't know at this point if these are ones i'm going to purchase what i've been doing is always first trying to find them well in my own collection if i don't own them look on youtube and then depending how much i want to see the movie if i'll buy it on blu-ray or not but we have ants from 1977. We have Tarantula's The Deadly Cargo from 1977. And we have Terror Out of the Sky from 1978. All three of those on Blu-ray, believe it or not. Those first two were on Spengoolie sometime in the last couple of years, at least. I know he yeah. put them in rotation. My first time seeing both of those movies. And I, when you say ants, I immediately see that VHS cover. Big box. Just Yes, it just makes me cringe. Terror Out of the Sky, just coincidentally, is a sequel to a movie that I just wrote about a couple weeks ago on Friday on the TV Terror Guide. It's The Savage Bees, which is really, really good, amazingly, but supposedly, I haven't seen it yet. A sequel. It's a, so that's a sequel to The Savage Bees? Yes, Terror Out of the Sky. Wow, I gotta ask then, what's, is it, that are bees the terror from out of yes. the sky oh okay i was and thinking I, like some airplane oh no it's bees okay yeah july 12th we have also from kino a film called terror circus 1973 i'm not familiar with it i've mentioned before all of these circus carnival movies get mixed up in my head uh, i did look at the credit this isn't one of the big ones i don't believe and then I have to call out a little bit out of the, the ordinary, but you will appreciate this. Shout Factory releasing the complete $6 million man series on July 12th. Have you seen how many discs is in that? I, I haven't, and I, I was curious because I have the Time Live box set. This is a case where Shout Factory has basically just bought the rights and are just repackaging. I don't think that anything new has been included. Well, to answer my question, there are 33 discs. That's almost, I mean, they could almost put that in a coffin set. <laughs> and then I did see, I, I don't have the date. I It's further out than we're talking about now, but Bionic Woman is also coming a couple months later. You know, I just, it's good that both of those are, are gonna be available. Uh, I guess the others probably went out of print because there was a long time when you couldn't find either one of those. Six Million Dollar Man is comfort TV for me. That just takes me back to my childhood. And I don't care how many times I see Steve Austin fight the robot, John Saxon, or, you know, fight Bigfoot. That's on, man, I'm plugged in. July 25th, the second season of Night Gallery is coming out on Kino Lorber. Thank goodness for Kino Lorber. That's, except for Six Million Dollar Man, that's the only one's putting anything out this month. And then, uh, well, this is curious. 
it says July 26th, so I've got one of those dates wrong. They're usually the same date, but Planet of the Vampires from 1965, also coming out from Kino on Blu-ray. This will be something I'm going to purchase because I don't own it in any shape or form, and that is something I want to own. Here is my Doctor Who reference as tangential as, or no, 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 I take that back. It is not. On July 7th, 1919 is John Pertwee's birthday. He was in a horror movie, a House That Drip Blood, right? Yes, yes. And, and that's it. That's all we know him from. Oh, oh. John Pertwee, my, probably my favorite doctor. Uh, I, you know, I hem-haw between, I also really like some of the, you know, like David Tennant, you know, as well. But John Pertwee, and actually he wasn't even my first doctor, but whenever I first discovered the John Pertwee episodes in the, in the 80s, they were hard to find. And that's probably why, again, that nostalgic memory of watching the Green Death from the next to last season of Pertwee, watching that in a hotel room in Denver, Colorado, convincing my mom and dad to let me stay in the hotel and record it on audio cassette while they went to church. <laughs> my dad had to be and my mom helped me out on that one you know and so i i got most of the the story on this 90 minute cassette that i just happened to have with me i think it had star trek episodes on it that i had brought to listen to and i just happened to have it and it was ready to go July 15th, 1941, Larry Cohen was born. We talked about him on episode 24. And by the way, we talked about House of Drip Blood way back in episode five. July 19th, 1919, a gentleman named Paul Dunlap was born. Now, this is not my step uncle from Enid, Oklahoma, whose name is Paul Dunlap. This is a composer who composed the music for Frankenstein 1970. No. We talked about that in episode 69. <laughs> <laughs> Anniversaries, uh, movies that were released in July over the years. Another movie we talked about, Asylum, another anthology we talked about in episode 36, was released in the UK on July 6th, 1972. The Fly, we talked about in episode 18, was released July 16th, 1958. And then, July 20th, 1958, Frankenstein 1970. We talked about that in episode 69. <laughs> 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 oh, coincidence, coincidence. Richard, what's up with you? Tell us, uh, get us up today. You got some big goings on. I do, I do. Made a decision in the last last month and really just as we record this it's june the 18th so you know last night the, the 17th i i made the decision to kind of make it official and i am shutting down the kansas city cinephile site for a couple of reasons i launched my first blog site monstermoviekid.wordpress.com back in 2012 so i'm actually going to be celebrating its 10th anniversary this october i launched kansas city cinephile in the late fall of 2016 as a way to really initially it was to have a place to put my film reviews that i had started doing for the boom howdy site and was working towards the kansas city film critic circle and that was all because of you I had started this secondary site and I kept Monster Movie Kid going 
And essentially for the last almost five and a half years, close to six, anything that has been monsters, horror, sci-fi, fantasy related have been posted in both places. I've been double posting. The only stuff that's been exclusive to Kansas City Cinephile has been like the Harold Lloyd or Marx Brothers or Laurel and Hardy uh, film reviews. Um, and, you know, it's so there's been that duplication going on. And quite frankly, I started looking at the fact that I've had some problems with the site builder is kind of the engine behind it. And I know some people over the years have kind of complained that it's very slow to load. They have no problems with WordPress, but site builder has been slow. And it's it is an issue with site builder. Other people complained about it as well. And um, you know, it's just it kind of came to a point where like I'm duplicating my efforts because most of what I do is sci-fi, horror, fantasy related. As many people have told me, look. Monster Movie Kids, my site. I can do whatever I want with it. If I want to post, you know, Laurel and Hardy movies over there, I can. Who's going to stop me? And I always kind of wanted to keep them separate, but it really came down to I wasn't happy with Site Builder, and I started looking at the cost to keep that page going. And you know, if I had any doubts, which I didn't, but if I did have any, they would have been. Uh, quickly squashed when I got the invoice this morning. The the sheer cost of keeping that going through Site Builder, Site Builder's cost have skyrocketed in a way that I just couldn't justify anymore. To to keep that going uh, would have cost me for the next two years would have cost me over four hundred and fifty dollars, and that's insane. Uh, especially when I'm not entirely happy with the fact that the site has that that lag you know it's very slow to to load uh and some people can't get it on their mobile i can't get it on my mobile phone i never could like or anything your things on that well that's just it i mean i I, there's there was no way to 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 like a post there was no way and there's no search engine so i you know i've been happy with it in some ways has allowed me to be a little more creative with the home page but it just came time to like you know what the renewal's coming up and there's a few things that have always bothered me and they were starting to bother me a little more. And then I start thinking of the cost and I'm like, and then of course I see the invoice this morning. I'm like, no way am I paying that for something I'm not entirely pleased with. So effective immediately, I have quit posting new things there. I did a, a post last night saying, hey, I'm shutting this down. Go here uh, to Monster Movie Kid. I changed the Facebook page, I changed my Instagram. So Kansas City Cinephile, the site will be up until about mid-July. That's when it, um, well, no, it'll be up until, I guess, August 2nd um, will be its official end date, if you will. Everything will then officially go away and the site will kind of shut down and everything disappears. Now, I still have the master drafts for all the other non-horror articles. So you never know, they might, I might start something up again someday and, and, and repost those. They still exist, they just won't exist online. If you are listening and you want to read those reviews, you've got about a month plus and they will disappear. Otherwise, everything I've ever done has always been on Monster Movie Kid if it's been in that genre and will continue to be. And so all my efforts are gonna be there now. And actually that saves me a little bit of double posting time and uh, just gonna refocus my efforts on Monster Movie Kid. It's a brand, it's my brand. I've been doing it for 10 years. So 
I, I love doing Kansas City Cinephile. It was fun. Uh, I love that name. Thank you for everyone who had been who put up with some of the issues with that site. And uh, everything going forward will be strictly Monster Movie Kid. And I, there's no problems with that. People continue to be able to like those and, and comment on that. There's a search engine that you can easily find past articles. So I think everyone, uh, everyone has had better experiences with that. That's kind of what's going on with me. So Flash Gordon is what the summertime series is. Uh, I decided to add something fun to it and focusing as well on the old time radio episodes of Flash Gordon. Didn't think about that when I started the idea of doing our summer series of watching Flash Gordon chapter serials. I thought, well, I know that there's old time radio shows, so I won't be doing the entire series, but all summer long, I'll be doing them chronologically from episode one on through. So just posted episode three last night and we'll continue to do that. And it's kind of turned out to where I'm posting the old time radio episodes during the week and I'm waiting until Saturdays to post the chapter serials. But having fun with that, we are covering all three chapter serials. So we are in the midst of the first Flash Gordon chapter serial called Flash Gordon. And then we'll be doing Flash Gordon's trip to Mars in July and Flash Gordon conquers the universe in August. And we do roughly three chapters a week where we kind of offer our thoughts and such. That is what is happening on my end of the world. What about yours? Well, I have something a little bit exciting. You know about this, but I had one of my impulsive actions. I saw uh, Scary Monsters. I get an email and it said they were doing a horror host issue. And I quickly write back and said, I'll do something about Count Gregor. And Count Gregor, my horror host from Oklahoma City, was has been on the cover of Scary Monsters. There's been an auto a biography written about him. What am I going to say about Count Gregor? And I'll be darned, they said, yeah, let's have 3,000 words. I was trying, grasping kind of, of really what to, to write other than memories of watching him, and, and I didn't have enough of those. But he is 94 years old and has been incredibly active even recently. So there was enough that he had done in the last 20 years since it had been in Scary Monsters that I felt like I could flesh out. And I had put on Facebook, uh, if anyone had memories, let me know. I'll be darned, he responded. I didn't tag him, didn't hashtag him or anything. He responded and I'm like, wow. And next thing I knew, he texted me his phone number. So long story short, too late. I spoke on the phone with him for close to an hour and a half. I have an interview. I was able to switch gears on my story and that will be coming out in the fall issue of Scary Monsters. And I'm pretty excited about it. I recorded the conversation. Very, very nice gentleman. I'm sure I could text him or call him and say, hey, can I play a few clips of that on our podcast? And I am certain he would be willing to do that. I don't even know if I have to ask him, but I would. I think that'd be awesome to maybe even do like a little little special bonus episode with some clips from that interview yeah. to tie in with when the the issue comes out. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, and I tell you, I've back in the Boom Howdy days and going to Comic-Con, I've interviewed some celebrities. Uh, I, the Bates Motel, I was big when that was on and got to interview Vera Farmiga and Freddie Highmore, and those were big, exciting things. Never have I been as nervous as 
when I had to call Count Gregor at home. <laughs> that was just, you know. Like, well, it's somebody from your, your childhood. Yes. I would be the same way if I ever was lucky enough to be able to meet Cremation Mortem, which was my horror host growing up, Roberta Solomon. I hope still someday that I can have an opportunity to meet her somewhere or you know i think that would be that'd be awesome and i would probably be just as nervous because i'm like you know that's part of my my childhood and memories of watching it with my dad and stuff would immediately kind of come over that's cool though i mean so here, here you've been doing so much cool stuff with we belong dead and that is a little harder for some people to get here in the states because even recently, I mean, it's become very pricey to get mm. some of those because of the shipping costs overseas. Scary Monsters is probably going to be one of your more accessible. I don't know. I mean, I think everyone gets Scary Monsters. Most most of the monster movie kids seem to to pick up. There's this like you know Scary Monsters, Monster Bash magazine. I mean, those people pick up a lot of that stuff. Well, I mean, Scary Monsters is the premiere. I mean, Monster Bash isn't as widely available, but you can get it online. I don't know that they're actually distributed in stores, at least not around here. So very cool. Congratulations on that. Thank That's you. awesome. Thank you. I just, I hope it's it meant a lot to me. So hopefully people will enjoy it. Just got to ask, you know, give us a little sneak preview. Has he embraced, you know, his his character? Is he fully aware? And, and oh, heavens of, yes. Of and he, he's a Oklahoma broadcasting legend. I mean, I don't, the horror hosts I'm familiar with have done other things in broadcasting and this is like hey we need someone to show this movie come in and do it and they kind of take off or they don't he goes way back to uh, a show called 3d danny the adventures of 3d danny which was a children's show done locally in oklahoma city and he was always the villain and i i did ask him about you know fame or, or whatever and he's been used to that he, he said he, they would go out way back in the days of 3d danny and be swarmed by people you know, the kids that love that show. I already renewed my subscription to Scary Monsters last month, so I'm, I'm good to go. Good, good. I'm sorry that went on way too long, but we're, no. getting, we're getting close to home, um, which by the way, this is interesting. Where's, where are we going? Why are we together? Are we going to Minneapolis? Are we going back to Kansas City? Are we going, did we leave our cars somewhere? Anyway, I won't. I don't know. How about we stop off in Des Moines and have a zombie burger there before we go. we go our separate ways? Tell us what, what we're going to do it again next month and the month we after are. that. So tell us what's coming up. Well, next month, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, we are traveling back in time to 1972. Yes, you we're, pronounced 1972 correctly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We are going to the Smyrna drive-in in Smyrna, Georgia. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, we are going to be seeing... What I have to say is the most bizarre double feature we have ever covered on this show, and I can't wait. We are going to be having some kaiju goodness. It wouldn't be summer without some big giant monsters. And we're going to be seeing a doozy. Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, better known today as Godzilla versus Hedera. But back then, it was the Smog Monster. And it is paired up with, not a kaiju film, but the thing with two heads, <laughs> folks, this is a legit double feature that happened in 1972. At the, actually, four films at the Smyrna Drive-In. We're going to catch two of the four. And uh, that is where we are headed 
next month. And you know, you never know who you might run into at the drive-in. And we've had an amazing luck. And and I don't know, something tells me we might run into somebody. We're dealing with kaiju films. And I know somebody else that's got a time machine that may want to travel back and check out Godzilla versus the Smog Monster. So we'll have to wait and see. But I think, I think we'll be in for a good time next week. You know, movies with two heads in their title are kind of like, what did I reference earlier? I get them all confused because they sound the same. Well, I had to just now look and see which one is the thing with two heads. Lordy, we're going to be in for a good one. <laughs> I have not seen this one. I, oh, I, you, you haven't know, ever? Because uh, I've seen, I think it's the two-headed transplant. Yeah. That's the one with Rosie Greer, right? Or No, oh, Thing with Two Heads is Rosie Greer. That's the one with Rosie Greer. Oh, and Rima Land, yes. yes. So we, the, we're going to have to be perhaps oh. careful. <laughs> yes, the we're, we're in for the car sequence, right? That lasts an hour and a half in that movie. I've seen this on the big screen before. Yeah. Already. This was at Cinema Agogo. Mm. Do you uh, know how many movies I haven't seen that I want to see? How many movies I would watch a second or third time again before I would have to watch this and I'm going to have to watch this again? Hey, you know. <laughs> what you know, the sacrifice and, and I make. The sacrifice you make for the Classic Horrors Club podcast. We appreciate it, sir. Uh, do they sell alcohol at the snack bar? 1972, I'm going to say probably not, but I'm sure you can probably find somebody with a cooler full of beer to help us uh, help us get through this one. That will feature coming up next month at the Smyrna Drive-In in Smyrna, Georgia. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I'm going to say Smyrna. That is familiar to me for some reason. Maybe it's where Julia Roberts was born? I don't know. I know, the name sounded familiar with me too, so there's something happened in. We'll find out and report next month. We will, yes. All right, anything else? We're almost home, like I said. I got a song I want you to hear before I drop you off, but anything before that? Nope, I am good on my end. All right, this song is The Pit and the Pendulum. It is by Rage from their 1993 album, The Missing Link. Sounds promising. Yes, let's enjoy that. Let's savor our evening at the drive-in. It's been a blast. Look forward to doing it again next month. Everyone, thank you for listening. Check out the YouTube video, and we will see you in a month. Stay safe and take care, everyone. Left alone